Hi, Lee here. Just a quick disclaimer before we start this week's episode. I was babysitting my friend's cats while recording this episode and my allergies started acting up. So about halfway through, you might hear me breathing a bit heavier in between words. I'm totally fine. I just wanted to apologize for the noise in the second half of this episode. It's a great discussion, though, so we hope you enjoy it. I forward you another pass due notice. Uh-huh. You're kidding. And he still hasn't made the payment. Uh-uh. Oh, boy. What a goslin. You know, after I slept out to his cabin in the middle of that hailstorm to set his broken leg. You're not gonna believe this, but Saturday night I'm at the break with Chris, right? We're schmoozing, and that hazard has the chutzpah to come up to me and, and try to mooch a beer. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Uh, I thought maybe he didn't, you know, because hazard means pig, and... In this case, I was using it in the sense of someone who's ungrateful, who takes advantage, uh, a Ghanif. What? Don't. Don't what? Talk like that. So we got Joel flexing with some Yiddish here, trying, trying out a lot of different phrases on Marilyn, who apparently can understand this Yiddish, but is also ordering Joel to stop. She does not like him showing off in this manner, I guess. Uh, Charles, what's your opinion of Yiddish? I really like it, but I don't know any like actual hard Yiddish. <laughs> I know of the ones that like everyone knows about, it's like um, vocab words, because it's been <laughs> yeah, like they've been turned into regular words that we don't think twice about. Um, Smithereens is one, is it not? Oh wow, I actually didn't know that. Hang on, <laughs> before we uh, spread misinformation. <laughs> what about the one that I always think of is Meshugana? Which I'm not, I'm not like a hundred even. What, is that, what does that well, even mean? Yeah, I'm not even a hundred percent sure what that means, but kind of, kind of feel like the context of it, knowing to use it. Oh no, it's from, uh, it's it's uh, from Irish. Okay, S- smittering. It's not Yiddish at all. <laughs> well, what other Yiddish words do you know, Charles? Yeah, let me find them. Not off the top of my head. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some favorite oh, Yiddish. Um, yeah. Uh, Hutzpah? Hutzpah? Okay, yeah, Chutzpah? that's actually, I probably, I, I bet I, I could, I bet I could better me. define that than Meshuggah, but still, Hutzpah is like what? When you have like the, when you've got the, the chops for it, when you've got the, again, it's more of a context thing. I don't really know what it means. <laughs> I, I, I know of a bunch of words that tell you that you're not Jewish, like goy. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I know that you're supposed to say Mazel Tov when like a good thing happens, or mm-hmm. if you want to be like, Really sarcastic? I don't know if yeah, Mazel Tov is Yiddish or Hebrew, but yeah, it definitely is a thing. It's a congratulations. Schmutz and schmooze. Schmutz, a lot of essay schmooze, yeah. Spiel. <laughs> Spiel. Spiel is a great one. Spiel, yeah. Everyone knows Spiel. That's what, exactly one of the ones that has entered our lexicon. Yeah, there, there was a very similar to the scene that just played out right here. There is a scene in The West Wing where Donna and Toby are speaking with one another, and Donna says... I'm perfectly serious, Toby. He's recovering from an attempted murder. He's supposed to be resting, and I don't want people going over there getting him fatushed. Fatushed. Don't bring the Yiddish unless you know what you're doing. You know what word should be Yiddish but isn't? Donna. Spatula. Thank you. <laughs> Calling her out. Spatula. I don't know. Maybe the ch, the ch sound, but that's not that's not very Yiddish to me. But, um, you know, Do- Donna has her own perspective. For for tutst. <laughs> what is it? For kutst? For tutst? Uh, for tust? 
I believe it's fartoost. Fartoost is how you pronounce it. Yeah. Yeah, it means like bewildered or disoriented, discombobulated. (laughs) Well, Charles, what are we talking about today? Okay, so what we're talking about is not predominantly Yiddish. What we're talking about here is Northern Exposure, the 1990s CBS television sitcom series. This is the Northern Overexposure podcast. My name is Charles, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Lee. My name is Lee, and I've seen this show a number of times. And Charles, this is your first time watching every episode, though now we're in the fifth season You've kind of got, I would say, definitely have a grasp for the characters and what's going on in the world of Northern Exposure. And uh, this is the Northern Overexposure podcast. We're your hosts. We like to overanalyze the series Northern Exposure, but also we have a little gimmick. At the end of each episode, we invite on a guest, usually someone who has never seen a single episode of Northern Exposure, to get their fresh take on the series Does this episode stand on its own? Would you like to watch more? What do you think about Northern Exposure? And at the same time, you know, we're expanding the reach of the show by introducing this series to all of our friends one by one, forcing them to watch the show. (laughs) Yeah. Well, speaking of looking at things with a fresh eye, this is something, and I'm sure you caught this as well, we're like, I think I can definitively tell the difference between season five and the rest of Northern Exposure. Talking like visually? Yeah, visually and a little bit content-wise as okay. well. Well, actually, not even a little bit. I would say like a, like a medium amount. I can tell the difference <laughs> between it. But I am super interested. Who, who, are the, uh, who was the episode director and the screenwriters for today? Okay, so today's episode is the second episode in season five. It's called The Mystery of the Old Curio Shop. It was directed by Michael Fresco. He directed the episodes Dateline Sicily, Thanksgiving, Old Tree. I think he's going to direct some more episodes after this. Uh, The writer was Rogers Turrentine. I believe this is his first episode of Northern Exposure that he wrote. Though looking at his credits, he worked on The Rockford Files, which was a show that David Chase was a showrunner for. Also, Rogers Turrentine, the writer of this episode, wrote a couple episodes, maybe two or three of I'll Fly Away, which is the other brand Falsy series that was created a little bit after the start of Northern Exposure, but which, uh, according to some articles, it said David Chase was a showrunner of that. I'm not 100% sure on that, though I do know David Chase wrote four or five episodes, directed a few episodes, uh, something like that with I'll Fly Away. So, We're assuming that now David Chase coming on to Northern Exposure this season is pulling some of his uh, writers that he enjoyed working with. The air date, lastly, is September 27th, 1993. But now that I got those credits out of the way, Charles, what what were you thinking about when you're saying comparing season five to what we've seen before? Yeah, so the most obvious one is the amount of set pieces that they're going through. Um, I think there is three entirely new places that I have never Mm. seen before. The outside of the theater, the restaurant scene between Maurice and Ed, and the antique shop, Lafleur's antique shop. I don't... Yeah, but that's definitely a new set piece right there because that's entirely introduced to this episode. And one of the things that I notice whenever a show gets a new showrunner or just like a new head at the top is that they like to explore beyond the initial boundaries. And oftentimes that comes literally with a new location right there because they're trying to uh, just make it more dynamic visually. I noticed this a lot in West Wing, actually, whenever Sorkin had left and we went to season five. 
there was just a lot more different locations being shot. Um, yeah. Just an entirely different style from him. And that was something that I just really honed in on on this episode. I wonder if it's like a new showrunner coming in wanting to create their own things rather than pick up where others left off. Uh, they feel like maybe that's been overtread and they want to start something new. Or it could be in some way a sort of reverence to what came before them. Uh, the showrunner might say like, oh, that was Aaron Sorkin's stuff. I don't want to redo that. Like, that's his. Now I, I, I want, I'll, I'll have to make something my own in order for it to work. Who knows what David Chase is, is doing here, but <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah, there's a lot of new locations. Um, well, yeah. actually, there's. I, it just came to me, there's not even just new locations, but there's new sides to old locations. So the most prominent example that I can think of is in K-Bear, whenever Maurice is speaking with Chris, there is a uh, particular angle that they're shooting from that they've mm. never shot from. I've never seen the camera be placed in this particular position where you can see Chris at the microphone stand, but if you, he's in the background, and in the foreground is Maurice's desk where yeah, he is. Okay. And that is a very unusual shot. I understand why they shot it that way because there's a back and forth between them and Chris has to Chris has to block toward Maurice and come into the foreground. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was really interesting that they took an old location and showed us a new side to it. Which, speaking of sides, I don't know if the listeners already know this. Odds are is that you do. But just in case you don't know, me and Lee actually co-wrote a video essay exploring Season 1, Episode 3, Soapy Sanderson's, where we examined the theme of sides. Just looking at all the different aspects of the townsfolks of Sicily, just sides everywhere. Yeah, that's free to watch on YouTube and... Yeah, it's our, our first video essay on Northern Exposure. It was a lot of fun. We'd like to keep churning some out. Uh, so hopefully we'll have some more uploading to that YouTube channel. I believe it's uh, youtube.com slash Northern Overexposure Podcast. Or if you just search it on YouTube, I'm sure it'll pop up. Uh, but yeah, check that out if you haven't already. Free to watch. Um, we talk a little bit about the lighting, camera angles and stuff in, in that video essay. But I've heard before that... Uh, some fans of the show would say season five and onward, I guess David Chase's influence makes uh, for a more like darker, more dramatic visual style to Northern Exposure. I'll say I've always thought that Northern Exposure had very cinematic lighting and just a cinematic look. Obviously, there's lots of great vistas and nature and wide shots used in the series. I would say that this episode made me think a little bit about the visual style. I was thinking about the scenes where Maggie is uh, in her truck at night and she's sneaking up at the old curio shop. And it definitely felt a little dramatic and and dark. Um, If anything, maybe it felt a little more, um, I don't know, like, actually, maybe I'll I'll hold off on on making any judgments just to kind of soak in a few more episodes. Because obviously I've seen this this season before, but I'm kind of watching this for the first time in many years. I would always go back and watch season one, season two, season three. Around season four, I would fall off, though, you know, I've rewatched those a couple times. It's been a few years, so got a kind of a fresh perspective right now I'm trying to take on season five. So I'll see as we watch a few more episodes, maybe I'll have, maybe I'll have a better, uh, a better thesis to present. (laughs) I don't want to, I don't want to say anything yet. No, I think that's wise because I am trying to do that as well because 
I think I can pick up the breadcrumbs of what's happening here. And I, I wasn't able to see it in the initial episode uh, for this season. In fact, I would still say that that one is still more original, like, quote-unquote, OG Northern Exposure compared to this episode. For some reason, on this one, I almost feel like it's a, like a pale imitation. Like, it's something that's mimicking Northern Exposure. Mm. And I have my thoughts on that, but I, that might just be me reading too much into it with the present information that I have. Well, I will say the previous episode was written by, I believe, Diane Furlov, Andrew Schneider, who are C, like series regulars. I believe they're even like exec produce, or producers on the show, like showrunner types. This episode, as I was saying, was written by Rogers Turrentine, who it's his first time writing for Northern Exposure. I would say if I had to like... Uh, if I had to comment, it, maybe it feels like a little like more of a spec script for Northern Exposure. I'm, I'm not saying it was a spec script. It just has those qualities of like, well, the characters are well established. What sort of scenario would you put them in? Like if you're just kind of taking what's there and giving it your spin kind of removed from, I guess, the writing room. Uh, I don't know. Uh, the the I don't know the like the gestation of this script, but uh, maybe maybe you're onto something that it kind of feels a little bit like a copy or an imitation. Well, let's jump right into it. Let's uh let's dive into the first scene of this episode where we're going to be seeing Maggie shopping at Ruth Ann's store. She's trying to pick up something for her father's wedding, which is going to be in a few days. Presumably, she says Saturday. I'm not not entirely <laughs> too sure what weekday they're on, but curiously Joel picks up that Maggie is not going to the wedding. Yeah, Maggie uh, explains that her dad is getting married in Venice. They sent out um, annou wedding announcements, not wedding invitations. So they're kind of eloping in a way. Uh, she mentions the bride is Jennifer Elgin, a talented composer, whom she's met before. Um, but... You know, it's a totally reasonable response to her, her father getting remarried. You know, like they they want to do their own thing. But as we can, as we uh, continue in this episode, um, Maggie has a bit of a uh, internal struggle with this, and I think it's pretty clever how it how it um, incubates throughout this episode. I did want to say um, Maggie's got an amazing jacket on. I really like that uh, costuming in this scene and uh, still really like her haircut. It's a completely new hairstyle this season than what we've seen. I don't think we've seen her wear her hair like this. Uh, I kind of dig it. Right, yeah. It's like, uh, what is that called whenever the uh, the gems are on the denim jacket? Is it called like embroidered? Yeah, I guess or, or so. Like rhinestone? Like, yeah, rhinestone maybe, yeah. It's cool. The jacket's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings us to the next scene where, well, actually, hang on. Yeah. Do you want to stick with this plot line or do you want to, you know, go through the episode as it was shot? Yeah, so our, our typical formula is we'll, we'll take one storyline and, and follow it through. Now, when you're watching the episode, all the storylines are interweaved, but maybe it's easier to talk about the progression of a story from like beginning, middle and end. Uh, we just started with Maggie, but what do you think? Where should we, should we continue with her? Jump around? Let's jump around. Um, if we're talking about the major plot lines, then the A plot would be Maggie and her father. The B plot would be Joel and the mysterious Jewish man that used to live here. And C would be Maurice. And I guess Ed is involved in a little bit, but mostly it's just Maurice. Yeah. Um, well, you want to do Maurice? Yeah, let's do Maurice. Okay. So 
Actually, it is, I believe, the next scene that we would see after this uh, Maggie shopping for a wedding present for her father. The next scene that we see um, comes after the opening titles. And Ed and Maurice are in, at first I was like, oh, I've never seen this part of Sicily, but they're not in Sicily. They're in some other town uh, and they're going to see like a movie. I think Maurice is treating Ed for being such a great uh, employee, something like that. I actually, I didn't get this down in my notes. Do you know what city or town they're in? I don't think it's revealed. I, yeah. I tried to look into it. The they walk Honestly, in front, I thought it was part of Sicily. Yeah, exactly. Well, they well, they walk in front of a bank um, that I had never seen before. And then they walk to a cinema. They're going to see a movie. It's all on Maurice. And the cinema says Cantwell Cinemas on the top. Now, Cantwell is a place in Alaska, but as of 2010, the population was 219. So I really doubt they've got a <laughs> movie cinema there unless it was booming back in the 90s. Um, though I can't find anything to suggest that. So I don't know where the name Cantwell Cinemas comes from. Maybe, I, who knows where they're at. Maybe it feels sort of like an anchorage or something like that, like a bigger city, but still in Alaska. And uh, we get this whole discussion. I think they end up going to see Menace to Society. Uh, I think it's between Menace to Society and Homeward Bound. And uh, Maurice goes to buy the tickets and... He believes that the uh, the cashier didn't make the change right. Um, she's giving him back too much money, too much change for his money. And she's like, no, 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 I gave you the senior discount, senior citizen discount. And this really offends him. Right. Uh, he, you can immediately tell this is probably going to be the, you know, like the, the major theme. Inception of his storyline. Yeah, the beginning, the launching point, right? Right. Uh, one thing, I, I don't know why I was really honed in on this, but the... What would you call it? The receptionist? The attendant? Uh, what do you call that? That's a, uh, someone in a kiosk. What, wait, there is a name for that, right? Not usher. Ticket taker? Whatever. It's not the, oh, no, it's the person who taker? sells them. No, Yeah. <laughs> We're definitely spending too long on this, but what is that called? That's <laughs> the, the, the individual that ticket is... Booth, attendant, whatever. <laughs> Go ahead, cut. Yeah. It's the individual that is selling said merchandise, said tickets. <laughs> uh, she has a very uh, distinct voice. It's kind of low and gravelly, and oh, yeah. I wouldn't have cared so much if there wasn't another little girl that had a very similar voice. And I was like, they cast two girls that had like very similar voices right here. This is a very Are you strange. Talking about right here. the um, what's her name? Like Kimberly that comes up later. Yeah, yeah, Kimberly okay. who talks about Nancy Drew. They they both have like oh uh, no 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 you're oh, talking about the um sorry I was Kimberly is like the date that Maurice goes on. We're gonna get to that, but there is I see oh. what you're saying. The little girl who is reading. Nancy Drew has a similar voice to this one. To this yeah, uh, kind of sounds like Emma Stone's voice. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't know why I made why, that. Why are, you, why are you offended by these voices? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not offended at all. <laughs> it just caught my attention. It's just like two very similar, very similar um, voices in different characters. Right, and they're very distinct voices. Because ordinarily, <laughs> if you would cast on like a regular role like this, you would just get like a, you know, a regular sounding voice. But... No, it just caught my ears whenever she was selling the tickets right there. And I thought it was going to be like a major character. character. I was just like, hang on. Like, what is what is happening here? Uh, Who is this? But in a way, <laughs> in a way, we can see that already Maurice is going to be offended at the idea of growing old. And we can see that really rise in the next scene whenever Maurice and Ed are having a steak. I'm going to say it's steak. It's something fancy. 
Yeah, it's like fine wine and dinner. I like that, um, you know, there's, it's like fine wine, but Ed has a goblet of milk. Instead of wine, he's drinking milk. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's very obvious that Maurice is, uh, he can't let it go. It's pretty, it must be such a big deal because Ed is ta- wants to talk about the movie that they just watched. And Maurice can only think about this um, this interaction he had with the person, whatever the job position is called when you're the ticket seller at the booth. <laughs> uh, we still get, what is the uh, box office uh, teller? Maurice can is is still fixated on that, and he sat through an entire movie. I don't I don't know the runtime of Minutes to Society, but I'd wager it's close to two hours. And he's still the only thing he can think about is this interaction. So obviously, it was a big deal. I just love how how Maurice is venting about this, and Ed is desperately trying to change the subject. Uh, he he says things like, "Man, that wine looks pretty good. I, I wish I drank." <laughs> just like trying to get he's Maurice so- to do something else. <laughs> um, it's hilarious because it almost comes off as sarcastic like whenever yeah. he says like oh geez Maurice I'm having a real great time yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't know if that's like dripping in sarcasm but like I don't think it is because I don't think Ed's capable of sarcasm but it comes off as hilarious <laughs> yeah he just wants to talk about anything other than um, he doesn't want to see Maurice upset like this I guess uh, but that's about that scene I think well, what happens next with Maurice yeah, and that brings us to the scene that I was talking about where they shoot where Chris is in the background and Maurice is in the foreground. And there's the doorway that actually halves them. It separates the two sides of the screen between Chris and Maurice right there. And mm-hmm. what's going on in the scene is that Maurice is going to be having a little shindig, a little birthday party for Ricky, one of his old flyboy friends. And, I mean, it's dated, like it's it's a it's a dated scene. All right, because like Maurice is like, yeah, you got to come over. I got this really hot girl that's gonna be there. She's gonna she'll hook you up with her her like friends or something. I, this scene is uh well, it, I think it definitely needs to be here to set up what's gonna happen next. But it definitely feels like it's literally just here to kind of dish out some exposition. Uh, Chris says something like, "Oh man, I wish I could come, but I got to help Gary with this or that." It's and we never see Gary. We never see Chris do like that. Doesn't really matter. It's really just here to explain that Maurice is going to have a reunion with one of his old buddies, and there's going to be. Uh, it needs to give some excuse for why Maurice is going on a date with this like very young girl. Um, yeah, yeah. It just it felt like a bit of just exposition. What is a what is a husky yet? I'm guessing that's okay. So I, yeah, I forgot that that word like that he says that. You episode. can try Googling it, but I, I, I couldn't find like anything on it. <laughs> I looked up, uh, I forgot that he says that in this episode. Um, and I was looking at the moose chick entry for this episode, as I usually do for when we're getting ready. And uh, moose chick writes, Maurice dates Kimberly, a 21-year-old huskyette slash bimbet with a taste for the vernacular. Um, and then quotes, Ooh, I'm rooted, which is something she says later. So I'm guessing Huskyette is like a, like a bim, bimbo, bimbet, I guess. What, what, what is a bimbet? What is a bimbet? Cause you would just say bimbo, bimbo, right? <laughs> Sorry. Is a bimbet like no, bim might Bilbo actually Baggins. be a thing. Sorry, go ahead. A, a bimbet might actually be a thing. Is a bimbet like, actually a word? B-I-N-B-A-T? B-I, huh. So bimbo is a derivative of bimbet. B-I-M-B-E-T-T-E. What does bimbet mean now? Is there a... Uh, the the, uh, the Merriam-Webster 
It says a bit disparaging the definition. An attractive it's definitely but stupid a woman. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, it's definitely not used in a positive manner. Is there one for a male equivalent? Like a Wait, like I think, a man I, think I guess use, I don't know. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think the youths have come up with one. Like instead of a bimbo, I think it's called a himbo. Himbo. That's right. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, okay. So what, what were we talking uh, about? Yeah, this scene. Anything else in this scene? Uh, I was just wondering what the heck. Yeah, I was just wondering what the heck a husky was. <laughs> what is was. he talking but, about? But yeah. uh, is it is it just me or is this scene unusually lit? Like it's very dark. Yeah. Okay. Let me let me check it out right, real fast. Oh wow. Yeah. Oh, you know what it is too. This scene, unlike any of the other scenes on this Blu-ray that we have, at least that I can tell. This scene looks like it has like a sort of a weird transfer. Like they may not have, I don't know why this would happen. It looks like it was like transferred more from video like because it has really crushed blacks. Um, you can see the film gate shaking a lot more. So maybe this was like the one copy they had of this scene looks a little, because uh, it is a lot darker because the blacks are really crushed. Now it is lit very darkly when we see... Um, Maurice in his office. So you are right about that, but it does does look a lot different from the rest of the Blu-ray, which is weird. I don't know why that is. I, I, we were talking about that Soapy Sanderson episode when we were working on that video essay. There is a, uh, a single scene in that episode that it also has a similar thing where it looks like the transfer was a, was a lot poorer, but just for one scene, not for the rest of the episode. Yeah, I thought it was a really unusual thing whenever I was watching it. I was like, there's looks, no way this is like a artistic, intentional choice. It looks rougher, you know. It's I don't think, it, yeah, it's not intentional, just the way they um, restored it, I guess. Okay, well, let's go on to the next uh, part. I think Maurice is pulling up to welcome his friend as they're being flown into Sicily. And his friend is on an oxygen tank. So this is like a shock to um, Maurice. His friend's name is Ricky. And yeah, you know, Maurice is expecting to hang out with his old pal and Ricky is now geriatric in a way, like very old. Yeah, he's uh, him and his wife are the appropriate <laughs> age doing appropriate age things. <laughs> Don't know why that like surprises Maurice right there. It's like, what were you expecting, man? Like, yeah. you're the anomaly. Like, but yeah, so uh, again, another reminder of Maurice to his age of what he, uh, of what he's going to become. And we immediately jump to the next scene, which is them at, which is at Maurice's place, which is, I'm pretty sure been schmoozed up. Like, I don't, I don't remember it being this, uh, this intimately <laughs> lit. He must've done something to the place. Yeah. And they're all drinking. Uh, well, at least Maurice and his date are the others can't really drink that much anymore. He says there's too much sugar, I believe. Yeah. Too much for my blood. Alcohol does hell to my blood sugar something like that. Uh, Kimberly, that's when we meet Kimberly and she's the very, she sounds like your typical Valley girl. I'm sure it's like a Valley girl impression or something. She's really laying it on thick. And she says like, I'm Jones in for a cigarette and later says, Ooh, I'm rooted. Um, rooted. I'd never heard of that. That's pretty surprising, but I guess that was some, uh, classic slang or at least what the writer believed to be slang at the time. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and in this scene, Ricky brings up a photo of their child. Uh, he could not come because he's studying for midterms for Harvard like Harvard or something. Yeah, so his, their son is very old at this, like probably the age of Kimberly or older than Kimberly at this point. Right, and Kimberly remarks that he is a, an attractive man, <laughs> which is again 
like another, you know, an, another comparison between Maurice and youth. Yeah. And Maurice is like, you know, jealous of this. Like Maurice does not have that youth and he's almost embarrassed anytime uh, Ricky and uh, didn't write down Ricky's wife's name. Is it Elaine or something? Eleanor, maybe? It starts with an E. Ellen. It's Ellen. Yeah. And um, yeah, Maurice is like embarrassed anytime they talk about this like healthcare program that they've got um, that's just for old people, you know? Um, so he's trying to like either change the subject or like kind of distance himself from that. Um, so he, I, I guess for to impress Kimberly more, but it's, yeah, it's obvious that there's, Maurice is no longer, no longer in the Kimberly class. He's in the Ricky. He's, he's approaching Ricky, you know? Yeah. In, in my notes, I just have this written down. It just goes, ha ha, Maurice old. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. You like to, we like to make fun of Maurice. <laughs> um, well, yeah. that brings us to the next scene in which we actually get to revisit an old set piece that they, uh, they never really bring out except yeah. for that one time that Maurice had a dinner party and, uh, didn't involve the big, and didn't invite yeah. Joel. Yeah. 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 <laughs> It is his wine cellar, and it's shot in the same exact way as it was in that episode where we can see uh, on the sides is the columns and rows of all these wine bottles easily soaring up to like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And right at the center is like that strange gate that they have, which I think we talked about in that episode as well. It's like, (laughs) is that a common thing to like have a gate? I don't know if that's how they were just maybe that's like a classic wine cellar um, type thing. I, yeah, we talked about this before. I would assume that it comes from a classical design where like the owner of the wine cellar wouldn't want their servants to like sneak into the wine cellar and drink their wine. Uh, I guess one, because it's expensive and two, they don't want their workers to be boozed up on the job. But <laughs> maybe it's more of a stylistic thing now because no, again, we talked about this. No one in Sicily uh, locks their door or, you know, they all have... They all lock their door, but everyone uses the same key. It's the same key for every door. Um, <laughs> this is such a cool shot for this scene. Well, it starts off, they're sorting like some cases of wine and Ed is helping Maurice do this. And Ed is like, you know, stacking the boxes and Maurice is like, no, Ed, like we normally do, like you pass it to me. We'll get like, it's like a um, assembly line thing. We'll get through it faster. And Ed's like, well, okay. And so we're now framed um, sort of in this uh, profile flat shot, I guess like very Wes Anderson style because we got the columns that are sort of framing Mm -hmm. Ed as he lifts a case, like a wooden case of wine and swings it uh, to the left off screen where Maurice grabs it and we'll take it and, you know, stack it. And we keep doing this, uh, swinging the cases and we start to slowly push in on Ed we're just seeing him swing the cases out of frame. And on the final one, uh, he swings his arms and lets go. And Maurice isn't there to receive the case. The case falls, shatters on the ground. And Ed runs to the left to go see Maurice in the camera really quickly because it's been it's a, it's been like dollying into this like um, corridor. And as Ed rushes off, the camera quickly pans around the corner. And we can see Maurice... I guess he's like sitting in the corner, uh, holding onto his chest, obviously signs of exhaustion, maybe like a heart attack. It's definitely a heart attack. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I just realized something about that. But uh, yeah, that's a really great description about it. Um, before I delve into that, I also want to bring up that before Ed started hauling these boxes, he wanted to go catch uh, an actress, Isabella Rosalini, I believe oh, was her name, yeah, on she's Letterman. Gonna, yeah. And what I thought was really interesting, and I don't know if it's connected, but then again, we're here to overanalyze. <laughs> uh, previously in that scene, I think that a character was mentioning Buddy Hackett on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. So there's been two instances of late night talk show hosts being invoked. And those people and that idea generally brings upon the idea of youths. It brings upon the idea of rebellion. Um, hmm. Just, you know, what's cool? What's at yeah. the upfront? Yeah. So it goes against the idea of what Maurice is right now. It's like contemporary because it's every night. It's like, what's the new hot celebrity? What's coming out in theaters? What's the new musical act? You're, yeah. When I think about late night talk shows. Yeah. Right. Right. And yeah, that brings us to the next scene where Joel is now going to do a very late night checkup. Yes. Joel is checking on Maurice now after this fall that Maurice, you know, and in the last scene, Maurice says, uh, you know, something's not right. I don't feel right. My fingers are tingling. So now we got Joel doing sort of like a, would you call it? I don't even know, an electrocardiogram or just like listening to the, like re recording the heartbeats and uh, analyzing that recording. And he says, you know, you've got a myocardial infarction or whatever. And Maurice says, what are you talking about? He says, it's a euphemism for, you know, you had like a minor heart attack. And uh, Maurice can't believe this. Obviously, like he's hurt because he just had a minor heart attack, but he also just can't believe this is not something uh, he, you know, he still feels young at heart, I guess. And um, Joel like tries to comfort him. Like he, he puts his hand on Maurice's shoulder and says like, don't worry about anything. We'll figure this out. And Maurice is offended just by Joel touching him, like trying to comfort him. Yeah, I actually just realized this. Um the euphemism, like the way that Joel tries to hide the actual term, like what actually happened to Maurice, is actually indicative of what Maurice is trying to do himself. He's trying mm. to hide the truth. It's evident that he's growing old, but he disguises himself with uh, very way, way below his age uh, dates and uh, lifestyle. Yeah. In a way, it's like a, a euphemism to not concern you that, you know, you might die, but also, you know, we have... The, trying not to offend the patient and not, you know, think of yourself as so old, I guess. Yeah. Also, uh, I, I, they bring up the idea of Ed being a shaman again. And oh, Ed's yeah. saying like, oh, this is like a really, really eye-opening uh, experience for me that you have to do this. <laughs> yeah. We haven't forgotten. Ed is now perhaps on a journey to be a shaman. So, um, though he still likes movies, I guess. They went, they saw some movies and I think he even relates to the Godfather in this scene. So, I haven't seen The Godfather, so I wasn't too sure what he was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you got to see it, man. Yeah, it's been a, while, a long time since I've seen it. And I've never actually seen the part two or part three. So it's a blind spot for me too. Anyway, uh, later, Maurice is at home later that night and watching. He puts on the tape of his launch when he launches into space. And it's a um, pretty still scene. We get sort of like the camera circling around Maurice says he's like deep in thought and the world is spinning around him. And this TV, um, it's pretty cool. Like we can hear the TV anchor give like a brief account of Maurice Minifield, this pilot 
uh, who's an Oklahoma native and he was like a pilot in the Korean War. Uh, he's been training for space flight for six years. And then we can actually, I think we, we hear like Maurice on, on the radio when he's like, you know, doing whatever communication to uh, ground control or whatever it's called, Houston or w- whatever you would say. Uh, but that's pretty cool. They like, you know, it's supposed to be, I guess, a much younger Maurice, uh, the voice, but it's also masked in like the radio static. But obviously while this is all happening, it's just like Maurice is kind of staring dead-eyed at the TV, so. Yeah, he's just reliving his youth right there. Um, you know, who amongst us hasn't done that where you like, you, you have like a moment of doubt uh, and insecurity and you just like, you just go to the only tangible thing that reminds you that you have value and worth. <laughs> that you're and I successful. guess to him, his value <laughs> and worth comes, yeah, it comes from his youth right there. I mean, it's arguable that you can say like, well, his it's his success that gives him value. But in this particular scene, it's mostly just the time that he had that made him feel important right there. We're really just hammering home (laughs) on this theme. And it just seems like there isn't like, it it seems like it just only goes from like a to B and we haven't gotten to B yet. B is like the very ending scene, but I was hoping that they could do more with this rather than just being a constant reminder because the next scene is also very similar in tone. I guess you can make an argument and say like, this is where he kind of breaks out of it. But the next scene after this is where Maurice is about to go to the hospital. Um, They can't finish everything up in Joel's little rinky-dink office. they got to bring him to a bigger town (laughs) so they can do more tests. And he is checking out his mail, and he gets a social security check. And he calls – I don't really know who he calls because I I presume (laughs) that comes from the government. Yeah. So (laughs) – Maybe it's he knows like his the financial, person, some financial guy. Or, uh, yeah, whoever he calls, he's calling to complain about receiving this check, obviously, like you're saying, because it's just more and more examples to show that Maurice is aging. Here, I've got a soundbite for it. I'm not ready to collect Social Security. I don't need it. Hell, I don't even believe in it. Look, you got it coming. Golden years, Maurice. Golden years, my ass. I don't need your old age benefits. You people are trying to kill me. What are you talking about? All of you with your special benefits and your bonuses and and your old... You're sticking pins in my doll. I gotta say, I really do like the acting here. I like when Maurice gets very big and animated and the way he's trying to (laughs) exasperatedly like yell and express himself here and he just like... He doesn't know what to say, and he finishes with, you're sticking pins in my doll, which I think is such an interesting, I don't think that's ever been said before. Like the, I think, well, you know, uh, we have a, a, a someone who writes in on Twitter a lot uh, that goes with the same handle, at you're sticking pins, ref- referencing this quote. I think if you were to type that into Google, that's, it's just Northern exposure. I don't think I've ever heard that, any, that expression before. Yeah, it's a uh, original content right there. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good. And, I, I really like that. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe it's supposed to come from um, like a voodoo doll, maybe, or like you're yeah, like a voodoo doll or a uh, you know, torturing me. Yeah, like a voodoo doll or like a straw effigy, like a straw doll. Um, I know yeah. that like you can stick nails through that, and that would also do like the same intended effect of cursing somebody. Yeah, it's a very curious expression right there. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, were you moving on? Oh yeah. He, 
he basically, after this um, protests to Holling, Holling's like, all right, you got all your bags packed. Let's get going. We got to get to the hospital. And Maurice just, uh, you know, protests. He's, he's not going to the hospital. Uh, sounds like a bad way for like Maurice to end this episode. Like he should probably learn his lesson and be happy to accept old age. Like that would be a typical ending, but I don't know. I got to give it to Maurice for sticking to his guns here. Yeah. He sticks to his guns because, uh, he ends the episode by going on a hike into the forest and then he strips <laughs> down to his tidy whities Maybe even beyond that. I think they just don't show it. And then well, he jumps. Gonna, well, he does. Yeah. He died. He does like a skinny dive. I was going to say, you know, Charles, we got the Blu-ray now we got 1080. We could like enhance and try to see. I'm pretty Try sure to see nude Maurice. No, you. I don't think you can. I, <laughs> like it's such a, it's such a far away shot. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty far away. But obviously, more, um, more detail than they would ex- would ever mean to show on um, standard definition TV. Though, yeah, you can't really see it. I guess even if you enhanced the film, it's too far away. Do you think Sorry. it's actually him? Uh, no, Do you well, think it's actually, actually him that did the jump? I, I know it's not because I was reading. Uh, Again, on Moose Chick, let's see, I'll read it from Moose Chick. Barry Corbin, that's the actor who played Maurice, talked about the lake scene at the end of this past summer at Moose Days 2001. He said he would only do it in one take. The water was very cold. Another time, he said, in the news group through Armando, who ran the old Barry Corbin website. Okay, this is what he said. You are right in assuming that I myself did not do the high dive. I was in the water, though, which was thrill enough as the pond was fed by a mountain stream right off the snowpack. The water temperature was approximately 38 degrees, which certainly causes every inch of you to draw up. Fortunately, I already had all the children I needed. Okay, got Okay, come on. Uh, so, yeah, so he, he, he is in, obviously, in the very last shot of the episode when, uh, when he springs out of the water, but um, the person diving was probably... A, trained diver i'm sure uh, ending uh, though what do, what do you think about that that freeze frame ending ah <laughs> uh, i thought goofy. my video lagged out <laughs> it's like that yeah it's like that 1980s thing where it's, it's like, like um, yeah the uh what's yeah what's the uh the breakfast club ending where he's like throws his fist in the air oh yeah <laughs> but it's nice it's a nice like celebratory exactly what i was saying you would expect this storyline to end with maurice coming to terms but in a way, he's like celebrating the youth that he still has in him. I mean, obviously, he can't deny that he's going to get old. He's going to, he has a heart attack. Um, you know, his body isn't the same as it was, but he's got some sort of youth inside of him that he, he's not going to let go of, which, you know, you could argue is maybe is not healthy. It's like, you know, you can't be doing, you can't be jumping off of this cliff when you're at this age. But I think uh, there's something to argue for that, you know, you you want to keep some youthful energy alive in you at all times, if that makes sense. Yeah, I get the sentiment of what they're trying to say, but, like, uh, I guess I could have just went in both directions. Like, yeah. they, they went with the direction of being, like, uh, it's important to stick with your guts and you can choose your own destiny. But then also it's, like, yeah, but, like, the inevitable march of time comes for us all. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe it would have been more graceful if he accepted that he was growing old <laughs> right here. But it, like you said, it's true to his character yeah. that he would do this. This reminds me of a previous plot line that they had kind of treaded upon. Um, I had forgotten the episode name, but it's the one whenever Maurice has 
uh, that individual that he looks up to a lot. Um, he really idolizes him. Uh, and was it like at the Colonel end, McKern or something? Yeah. And at the end, it, he, you know, he realizes that he, he's a human. He, he has faults like anyone else. And he comes to accept it. Uh, it's character growth being done on Maurice's side. We can see him, you know, starting to realize depths and facets and in other individuals. And I really like that episode for Maurice. And in this one, I don't know. I, I don't know if I can call this genuine character growth. Yeah, it, you're right. It doesn't feel like character growth, but I think my argument is that it's more about, um, you know, it's it's not about like changing this character, but more about uh, expressing the the philosophy of like, hold on to your youth, hold on to that part inside of you that feels young. Don't be afraid to express that. But I don't know. We, we're arguing both sides now, and I think I think I also agree with you that it's probably not the healthiest thing to just deny that truth, you know, to yourself. <laughs> but uh, that that episode you're talking about with the colonel, I wanted to shout it out because it's one of my favorite episodes. The episode is called Lost and Found. It's the 17th episode in season three. Really great episode. Oh, okay. Um, the la- the music at the end of this episode is a track that has actually been played before in this series. If you remember in Spring Break, that was the fifth episode of season two. At the end of that episode, I don't know if you remember, Charles, they do the running of the bulls. Do you remember what that is? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when they like all strip down and go running in like the yeah. snow. And the song that's being played is D.W. Sweet by Lindsey Buckingham. And I really like that song in that episode. I think that's the first time I heard it. And I've always loved that portion of the song. It's a very long song. And the part that we hear in this episode is actually taken from a later section, which is very, um, it almost sounds kind of like Celtic or folk, but it's very electronic in a way, like synthesized almost like like carnival style music too. I don't know how you would describe it, <laughs> but it's it's joyous and and synthetic in a way. Yeah, that's kind of neat that they revisited a different part of it. Um I guess it's kind of retreading upon the uh the same ideas a yeah. little bit. Kind of I feel like of, it's kind of like a you know, you can stretch and make that about like any any anything though. Like if, right. you, if you really wanted to. <laughs> it evokes that like nudity image, I guess, the same song and they're stripping down. <laughs> But as you said, this is the final scene of the episode, the end of Maurice's plotline, his arc in this episode. So let's rewind it back to the beginning and pick another storyline to follow. Yeah, let's follow uh, Joel in his journey about being a Jewish man in Alaska. All right. So this starts off with that beginning bite that we were talking about, where Joel is questioning whether somebody had paid their bill. Uh, it's going on a lot this episode, actually. Joel just... <laughs> questioning Marilyn about, you know, settling debt. And Marilyn says that she had to schmeichel her. Schmeichel? Schmeichel? Schmeichel is how she pronounces it, yeah. She had to smite. I think she says smeichel, but... Smeichel? I don't know, schmeichel. (laughs) (laughs) It basically means to flatter an individual. So she had to really lay on the wax in order to get the the money that she is so duly owed. Yeah, and Joel's like, hold up, like... That that's uh that's flattering. Like you learned some words from me, you know. You learned Schmeichel, and she's like, no, it's it's a Tlinket. It's from Tlinket or something. It's from a Tlinket lullaby. She says, and he really doesn't believe her. Let, let's see, I got a bite for it. So Marilyn sings him the the lullaby. <laughs> Michael, 
All June, I see good year. All right, I, I'm sorry. What, what does that mean? The owl of sleep calls out to coax you to his tree of dreams. It's pretty wild. I like the way Joel says, that's pretty wild, and just like walks away, not really sure how to respond. I like how that's like applicable to today. Like you could write a scene where they say like, that's pretty wild. It's like, yeah, yeah some Zoomer slang right there. Yeah, actually wild. Like the idea that's pretty wild. It seems like um common, you know, phrase today. Uh, the way you would react, <laughs> I guess. I like how, kind of sounds like Marilyn just threw Smichael in there. You know, she all the other words sound like Tlingit, but Smichael, you can hear it. You can like hone in on it, I guess, because we know to expect it now that she's about to say it. But um, That's true. <laughs> yeah. I like the lullaby, the owl of sleep calls out to coax you to his tree of dreams. And you know, a lot of this episode, you know, there is a dream sequence here, but a lot of this episode felt kind of like a dream, particularly with Maggie's storyline. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get there, I guess. But yeah, I gotta, gotta say, uh, I really like the, I don't know, sort of the dreaminess of this episode. Yeah. We can walk down this, uh, this plot line and see Joel at the brick uh, oh, I love he this is scene. Yeah. A. Um, he's getting an elk brisket Reuben at the brick. That's intense. <laughs> That's intense. But also, <laughs> what's really neat about this is that that order is a mixture of Alaska and Jewish cuisine. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. Like the Tlingit mixing with the Yiddish. Uh, there you go. It's a nice, a nice uh, mixture. He asks Dave, who is like serving him. He's like, "Hey, you, you know, like, have you ever heard of any like Yiddish words?" I think he says. Um, they talk about the phrase, Al- oh, God, I don't know how it's pronounced, Altacoker. Altacoker. You know, Dave's like, yeah, I know that. He, he says it. It sounds a little different when Dave says it. And Dave says, it means ancient venerated one. And Joel says, not exactly, but I guess it's kind of close. I love Dave's interaction here. His response is like, hmm, it's pretty interesting. I got burgers burning. And he just like walks off. He's like, I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually, it's really close. Like, I think Altacoker, Altacoker, it okay. means old-timer in Yiddish. Ah, so yeah. it's, like, extremely close right there. Yeah, I like that. You know, I like that interpretation through, like, a, um ancestral, you know, native tongue, like, ancient venerated one. It's pretty funny. Old-timer. Right. So to dig a little bit further into that, Joel heads into the town records held by Ruthann, Getting again to a ah, shot that we yeah. don't ordinarily see. It's like the basement of Ruthann's store where they keep a lot of uh, a lot of old files and papers. And Ruthann's explaining the like, oh, this is like, um, you know, uh, there's been like some people like Cutfer that tried to establish a place, or like these other individuals that were like touching upon the land. But the thing that really rings into Ruthann's memory is this individual named Paul Berman who apparently kind of like uh, assimilated himself into the culture in the 18th century. He was like a, I think Joel says he was like a Russian fur trader. Something like that, yes. In the 1700s in Alaska. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't write too much down for this scene other than I really liked the uh, the set that you're talking about down here. I think we've, we may have seen this before. If it's the if it's the basement of Ruth Ann's store. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she's got like a whole wealth of history down there. She's got so much... Because it's like the first two things she brings up, it's not uh, it's not even what Joel's looking for, but she's got so much information down there. That really reminded me of, I, I don't know why it reminded me of this, but the Robonaut colony, have you ever heard about that? 
Uh, oh, Roanoke? Roanoke? Is that how you pronounce it? I'm really so. terrible with pronunciations. Yeah, it's the Lost Colony. Right. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was the thing where it was like way back in like the 1500s, like late 1500s. There was like a colony that was going to be landing in what is now North Carolina. And they they were living there for quite some time. And then they actually lost count of the colonists that were actually there. They have no idea where they went to. Uh, some people speculated that they might have been massacred by the Native Americans. But recently, I think that most of the times people believe that they actually just assimilated with the Native Americans. Mm. Um, it looks like times were rough in that colony and they didn't have any other option but to go with the Native Americans right there. And yeah, they, they just left the town. Yeah, it's like a ghost town when they found it. And they, like you said, they, I had heard the theory that it's like they probably got massacred or something, or maybe they, be hard to believe, but maybe they all died of um, starvation or something in a harsh winter. I actually never heard about that theory that they assimilated with the Native Americans, but I think that's pretty cool. And obviously, it's a good precedent for what's ha- what this character, Paul Berman, uh, is you know believed to have assimilated with the natives there in, in Alaska. Yeah, you want to take us there on the next scene where uh, Joel dives into Mr. Paul Berman? Yeah, so I believe the next scene is Joel chilling on his porch. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Such a cool vibe we got going on here. Like, I think we've seen Joel's porch before, uh, but very rarely this close. It's usually like in wider shots. Usually you don't have a scene set where they're like hanging out outside on the porch. I really like it because Joel is just hanging out on the porch and Ed walks up and he's like, hey, Ed, you're like the perfect person for me to be talking to right now. Uh, hang out for one second. And he starts talking to Ed about this book of Alaskan legends that he's been reading. And he's read about this bear man uh, who fits sort of the description of Berman. And just talking about the similarities of a Jew having some sort of lasting, profound cultural effect on Alaska. I think he brings up like circumcisions and things like that. I'm not sure what else, but you know, he's, he's talking about Berman leaving a mark, I guess, on the natives. Right. Uh, I think that they're obviously trying to draw a parallel between Joel being a Jewish person being in Alaska and uh, Mr. Berman being a Jewish man in Alaska and how they're affecting the town. It's kind of a neat parallel from episode one where Joel was the fish out of water and he's the one being affected uh, but now it's flipped where Joel is having a significant influence on the town. And it's undeniable that he is because throughout this episode, he's treating Maurice for his heart attack and he's also treating Maggie. He's actually like, he's now become a cornerstone in Sicily, Alaska. Right. So it is kind of, it's kind of interesting that they're paralleling with this. Uh, what I found even more interesting is that the language of Yiddish being interweaved with Tlingit is a marriage of sorts, which is something that's going on with Maggie's plotline. Lots of ideas of people being married, especially between Maurice with Ricky and Ellen, Joel between the languages, and Maggie with her father. Yeah, interesting mixtures, you know, in, in marriages, as you said. So I don't think that's the final bit of this, like, Tlingit Yiddish plotline. There's definitely more with Joel and Maggie. But if we fast forward through the episode, uh, we get to, I want to say it's the scene that we played the opening soundbite from where Joel is trying out a lot of 
Yiddish on Marilyn to see what she can understand. She's basically, well, we didn't play it in the soundbite, but she's like, you know, after she says, stop it, don't, don't do that anymore. Stop, stop speaking Yiddish. Uh, she says, you're no bear man or you're no Berman because Joel is kind of getting a little, he's in his own words, megalomaniacal comparing himself to this, this mythic character. Uh, Marilyn has to knock him down a peg to be like, you're no Berman. Well, in another kinder interpretation, she might be saying like, you're no Berman, but you're Joel Fleischman. You're like a different being. You don't got to be like him. You can imbue different aspects of yourself into the town. Yeah, be yourself. Don't try to be Berman. You know, <laughs> Yiddish is fine. Like, you don't have to teach us all Yiddish. Like, we got it. We've gotten that far. Uh, do, do be yourself, you know. Uh, but that's Joel, right? That's Joel and, and Yiddish and Tlingit. We can really redirect our focus now on Maggie, who started the episode. Right, so let's rewind to the final plot line with Maggie, where we see her pull up to Lafleur's Antique, where she's shopping for a gift for her father's. Yes, the title of the episode, Mystery of the Old Curio Shop. We've got this old curio shop. She walks in and she's like, how long have you been here? Like, this is the first time I've noticed this. And the lady inside the store says, you know, we've been here about a year. Uh, Check it out. She's looking around and she becomes really focused on this little statuette. It's an Anubis statuette. And the person, uh, actually, I don't know if it's the store clerk or Maggie who says it, but they're like, oh yeah, Anubis, the mortuary god of ancient Egypt. That is the store clerk. Store clerk. And of course, for some reason, Maggie's like, this would be perfect for a wedding gift for my dad. Uh, Maybe her dad is just into stuff like that, but I don't know. I, I couldn't even, even if... You know, my dad likes The Walking Dead, but I'm not going to give him like uh, a Walking Dead <laughs> statuette for like his, you know, if he gets remarried to my mom or something. Else. <laughs> yeah. What I what I wrote down on this particular scene is that I really like the way she enters into the shop. So it's a very okay. interesting shot. Uh, it starts at the top of the door where the bell is. Like, you know how you enter a door and it goes like, ding, 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 to like alert the <laughs> yeah. uh, clerk that someone's here. Mm-hmm. Uh it goes on the bell and then it pans downwards to Maggie and the camera tracks with her as she walks through the store from right to left. And there's a bunch of items on the shelves that are in the foreground. And we're seeing that pass as Maggie keeps walking between the shelves before she finally stops on that Anubis statue that you mentioned right there. And I think that's a really interesting shot. Yeah, it does have a sort of like lyrical quality where... Again, I'm going to try to I'm going to try to say that a lot of this plot line feels like a weird dream, but it does kind of feel dreamlike in a way that she's like floating through this environment. The char- the the camera movements uh even before she enters the shop when she gets out of the truck, I just rewatched it cuz you were talking about it. But the camera sort of slowly sways and moves as she's entering this mysterious shop. Uh another thing that's just weird about this um this scene you know she asks about the anubis statue and this lady at the store says well i gotta go check i I don't know what we're charging for this let me go check she goes to the back room and she opens the door to the back room and we can kind of see in a little bit from maggie's perspective there's a poodle in a cage that's just like barking crazy i don't know something about this feels very twin peaks where it's just like a couple of odd elements Nothing that's just like scary or graphic or, um, or, or or startling, but it's just like weird little touches 
that are just like, what is going on? Like, it makes you curious. Right. I felt that it was like subtext for the woman situation. Like she mm. is in a cage right there. And I was like, that's like really heavy on the nose right there. <laughs> but I think that it's supposed to also be like, like what you said, um, very David Lynchian, very odd things that are happening right here. Uh, we can see that there's like a little bit of a domestic uh, argument yeah. between the owner of the shop and the person that's, you know, uh, attending to it right there. She says, we have many items on display, but I guess I forgot to label it. Yeah. And when I first saw this episode, I remember, because because the lady goes to the back and it's like, I told you, it's not for sale. It's not for sale. Like someone's yelling at her. I thought that mm-hmm. this like Anubis statue would have had like some sort of mysterious curse or something on it. But the focus of the mystery in this episode is it really doesn't stick on the statue for very long. It does focus on this lady who was at the store and the sort of domestic squabble that's happening, like what could be going on behind the scenes at the store. I think you're right. That's basically the end of that scene is, um, sorry, I should have relabeled it. It's not actually for sale. And um, Maggie has to leave after that. Right. The next scene after that is Maggie going to deliver uh, some supplies to Joel's office. Again, Joel remarks to Marilyn that uh, they didn't get like all of the supplies. Like the um, the shippers had messed up and forgot to include something. Mm-hmm. That happens a lot in this episode <laughs> where Joel is on top of things. Ah. Um, being like, oh, this person didn't pay their debts. This person forgot to send this item. I thought it was very unique. It happens like four times this episode. We're just having constantly Joel being aware of the situation. Yeah. Again, re-cementing this view that Joel is now uh, affixing himself to life in Sicily. Yeah, he's like in it. He knows what's going on. He's like on it. Yeah. <laughs> there is two words that popped up to me in this scene. So basically what the scene is happening is that the first part is Maggie explaining to Joel saying like, how weird is it that, that like this situation is even happening? Like, uh, do you know anything about this place? And Joel says like, oh yeah, I know about that antique place. I bought, a, <laughs> I bought an escritoire over there. An oh, escritoire yeah. is a small writing desk with drawers and compartments. It's one of those things that you know, but you don't know the word for it. And I'm glad <laughs> I know what the word is now. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention this. Uh, that antique shop, you can smell it through the screen. <laughs> the potpourri, like the... <laughs> yeah, the candles. <laughs> uh, the other word I was going to say was that uh, Joel mentions to Maggie that you don't got to get your dad like a Anubis statue. You can get him some Calphalone. Calphalone, I had no idea what it was. Yeah, uh, it's actually, it was a manufacturer of cookware that was marketed primarily toward upscale retailers. The neat thing about them is that they're credited with inventing hard anodized aluminum cookware, hmm. which is, um, it's like, it's got like another layer in the aluminum that helps you cook. Got it. Uh, it reduces uh, corrosion and warping and makes them more durable. Apparently that was like a, just like a, you know, a neat, cool thing to have in the nineties. At the time. Yeah. Makes me think of like, I guess something today would be like, I don't know. What are, what are the, like Cuisinart, what are the brands for cookware today? Cuisinart, I think, uh, is still classic, too. Yeah, I think Cuisinart is still there. Um, Mr. Coffee, I don't know. I don't, that one's, I don't think that's, like, high, high that's brand. That's pretty old it? still. No, I'm just thinking of, like, brands you would recognize for, for um, oh, kitchenware. Oh, okay. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> whatever. Uh, 
Well, well, let's talk about this scene. So, yeah, Maggie explains, like, isn't this so weird that this is happening? And I think it's Joel that says exactly what you're saying. It's like, you don't want to give him an Anubis. You could, he says, you don't have to give him a coyote-headed death god or something like that. And then a voice from across the room, it's the the girl that Joel had just finished treating, uh, something wrong with their cast, I think. She calls out, it sounds like a, you know, like maybe maybe this Anubis statue was stolen from a pharaoh's tomb. Of course, that's what it would be if it were in a Nancy Drew novel. Maggie starts hitting it off with this little girl because they're both obviously big fans of Nancy Drew. Yeah, that's actually really interesting that they bring up Nancy Drew. One thing that I never thought about until I looked it up uh, before discussing this episode is that some commentators see Nancy Drew as a paradox. Um, It can be something that feminists can laud her as, like a formative girl power icon, and conservatives can love her well-scrubbed middle-class values. Mm. And that totally makes sense. I I never thought about that before. But it seems that on both divides of the ideology, they can find aspects of Nancy Drew that they really cherish and say like, oh, she's really great because of X value. And then the other side can be like, oh, it's really great because of Y values right there. And Nancy Drew is both. Uh, She embodies both of those sets of values. And I guess in a way, it kind of describes Maggie as well because she comes from, you know, these middle-class values of being in Michigan But she's also a person that ran away from home so that she can discover more aspects of herself. Um, And she finds herself in Sicily, Alaska. She is very much like Nancy Drew. And we can see them really hammer in this idea as we go further into the episode. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't think about that. A very large target market for Nancy Drew. Uh, I was going to make a joke about, well, you know, they made like a Nancy Drew movie, I think, with... Emma Roberts. It's going to make a joke that it was like a box office failure, but it did. I mean, it's not like it wasn't a huge success. This is 2007's Nancy Drew with Emma Roberts. You know, they made another Nancy Drew, right? That's the one I was trying to look up. What's the other one? It's got the, it's got that um, actress from it. She Uh, plays Beverly. Yeah. Let's see. Did that, did that one uh, do well at the box office? I I highly doubt it. (laughs) I'll tell you that much, man. It's a TV series, right? 2019 TV series? No, no, no. It's not a TV series. It's a, it's an actual mm. movie. Why can't I find this movie? It is Nancy Drew and the Hidden Staircase. It uh, it received mixed reviews. Yeah. Okay. So this one, ooh, ouch. It did. It didn't. It didn't make a million. It's a budget of 17 million. Didn't didn't even make a million. Well, it's a different time, I guess, for Nancy Drew. But back in 2007, they turned they turned around their budget a little bit. So. No, no huge numbers, but no one was, you know, disappointed. No one was celebrating. Uh, anyway. Did you ever, uh, <laughs> did ahead. you ever read Nancy Drew? I feel like I read, you know, I can't tell. I feel like I read one, either Hardy Boy or Nancy Drew. Honestly, I can't remember much of it. I do remember liking it, but it's possible I could have read a Nancy Drew. I don't know. Did you? Did you read any of those like mystery? I read more Hardy Boys okay. than I did Nancy Drew. I could not tell you the plot of any of those Hardy Boys. <laughs> I, I, I read so many of them, but like they're just gone in my mind. And I remember liking Nancy Drew as well. Uh, I didn't. I didn't think it was unusual of any kind. Kind of just thought it was the same as Hardy Boys, honestly. But uh, now that we're revisiting it, I can totally see that it had a like a totally different approach than Hardy Boys. 
Uh, what what is the approach like? What do you mean? I, I'm actually not very familiar. Well, it's really interesting, and they bring it up in this episode as well. Uh, Nancy Drew is in a stable single parent household. Uh, she had just a father figure, and the mother tragically uh, passed away whenever she was young. Whereas the Hardy Boys had both a mother and a father, and even an aunt that uh, <laughs> took care of them. And I'm pretty sure. Like it had more characters as well, but that's a le- you know less important thing. The more important thing is a family dynamic of it. Nice. Okay. Yeah. There's definitely a distinction there. Okay. Sorry. Real quick. One last thing about Nancy Drew. You were asking if I had read Nancy Drew or Hardy Boys. This title, of this film, the the 2019 film Nancy Drew and the Hidden Staircase. That seems like something I've read. That's based on one of the books, right? Let's see. Yeah, that's one of the early ones. Is that like a really famous one or something? I'm trying to figure out why I might have read this, but. It does sound super familiar. Like if I had to think about that mystery book that I read when I was a kid, it involved like a staircase or something, like a house and a staircase. I, it's the second volume, I think. I, I okay. think the first one is dealing with a clock, and then the second one is the staircase. All right. Maybe I'll have to pick it back up or something. I don't know. This also all reminded me of like, um, I don't know if you remember that movie, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Yeah, yeah. There's like a fictional um, author in that book called Johnny Gossamer, and he writes like a bunch of mystery books and stuff, and they talk about that a lot. That movie is pretty interesting because it's kind of designed like one of those old mysteries where, you know, one they talk about it in the movie. It's like one of the mysteries. There's, there's like two mysteries going on at once, and uh, the real trick of it is like one of the mysteries is actually part of the other mystery. And I think there's some of that in this episode where – Maggie is trying to combine a lot of loose threads to thread it together to make one huge case. Right, right. Lots of uh, lots of aspects of mystery writing into there, and we we can definitely see it in the next scene as well. Uh, the aspect of um, interweaving uh, a lot of techniques that he used in mystery films, uh, because she revisits back into the antique shop to try to pick up that Anubis statue. Uh, when she enters into the shop this time, it's actually really interesting. There is a, uh, there, there, it's out of focus, but there's a shot of a Tanuki statue. As soon as she oh, enters, oh what? <laughs> we were just talking about Tanuki on a uh, Patreon, so yeah. And I think it's really odd <laughs> that this place has so many statues of various cultures <laughs> in here. But anyway, she goes back in. She's trying to buy a Numa statue, and she meets the surly owner of the place who like essentially tries to gaslight her and tell her like, no, there was like never a statue here. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm the purveyor of this joint. I would know there was a statue that we were were selling. And then suddenly this car pulls out. Like it just like, just, just goes off into the road. And I wrote in my notes, I was like, dude, are we in a God dang, like thriller movie now? Like what is happening? (laughs) Yeah. This is like a thriller. It's so ominous. uh, Yeah. And, and very mysterious. Like the dog is not in the cage anymore. When we see back in that room, that car is very specific. I was like, what kind of car is this? And uh, Brittany, my, my girlfriend was in the room. I was like, what kind of car is this? Do you know what this is? I, I don't know anything about cars. And she was like, I don't know, like 1940s convertible? Just like Google that. And I Googled 1940s convertible. This exact car and like color is like one of the first Google images. It's a 1944 Ford convertible, I guess. What? Uh, yeah. the, mystery, the mystery extends on. <laughs> Um, yeah, and the person, you don't really get a good look, but you can kind of see from Maggie's perspective. I think she looks out the window when the car zooms off. 
you can see that the person driving looks younger than what you would expect, like the old, the lady who was running the store before. Also like maybe a brunette. It's really hard to tell if it's like a man or woman or what. And that brings us to the quintessential dream sequence, where we are in a Nancy Drew sequence. Maggie playing the titular Nancy Drew, and she's surrounded by two people that uh, we actually don't know. They're uh, they're just random <laughs> people they hired Randos, to play the role yeah. of Ned and uh, Nancy's, uh, I'm assuming, like, friend. I forgot the name of that character right there. And... Uh, it, it, you know, they're dressed in very crusty, upper, middle-class clothing right there. Again, subscribing to you know, uh, middle-class values. And <laughs> they're going through what's happening because Maggie receives an ominous note underneath her door that says her father has been kidnapped. Again, bringing up the usage of father. And mm. the characters are saying like, oh, it could be like, maybe it's the case of, uh, well, what is it, like the Crocodile Island? <laughs> I don't remember. They're so they start naming a lot of different cases. Right. They start naming like various cases of saying like how it could be associated with this. And then they say at the very end, they're like, oh, maybe it's connected to the nitrous oxide. And then Maggie says, what nitrous oxide? Yeah. And uh, the, the way the dream ends, like we get these little, we get a lot of these little plants and stuff. But at one point, Maggie, I guess, has Nancy Drew starts listing a bunch of different cases and tries like saying, maybe it's has to do with this and that. And I think it's funny, even like her sidekicks are like, wait, what do you what do you mean? What are you talking about? Like, how is this, how is this add up? And it's like a hard cut to her waking up. She's like stirring in bed, and it's Maggie waking up from obviously this this dream. And this brings us to a really interesting scene. So I had remarked how interesting it was whenever Maggie entered into the LaFleur's antique shop and how the camera pans downward from the bell and then tracks her along from right to left. Mm-hmm. A very similar shot now happens with Maggie re-entering her home. The camera doesn't pan downward, but it focuses on this lamp right in front of us that looks like a bell as soon as Maggie enters the door. Mm. It's really right in front of her eyes. And then she tracks from the room from right to left with various lamps and pillars in the foreground, just like in the antique shop whenever she was walking through it. And I think it's meant to parallel that shot of walking into an unknown place because now even Maggie's home is now a strange, mysterious location. Yeah, we get the sense that she's like, She's not being very observant because she just walks straight in. She's got stuff in her hands, like her mail that she's occupied with, not really looking around or perceiving things until she goes to make herself some tea and she reaches for something and there's nothing, like she's reaching for something, it's not there. She shoots a glance and we see her mug, a coffee mug or a tea mug, all the way across the room. And finally, she looks around and sees that her window is open. And it's in the next scene where she like is talking to people and explaining, look, like someone must have been in my place. I, I would have remembered if I left the window cracked. It's too cold for that. So yeah, I like that. This, the previous scene where she's kind of moving through her house. Very, I like that visual style you're talking about, you know, how, how there's no dialogue there. And it just really feels like Maggie's thinking about something, but we don't know what. And then we get this uh, kind of shocker that the window is cracked open. Right. She discusses this with Shelly, uh, one of the only speaking roles that Shelly has this episode. She's kind of fixing some orders. <laughs> and Maggie is immersing herself in this mystery. And this is when I wrote that 
the more she is diving into this mystery, the more she's moving away from her father's marriage, which was initially the very first scene. Now, we're not even talking about it at all. Yeah. She is more fixated on this mystery aspect. They're going to hammer that home later in the episode as we go on. But you can tell that this is all that's on Maggie's mind because she's talking to Shelly about the missing nitrous oxide. She's telling her about the window <laughs> being opened. Just all sorts of things that are happening. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, we started this episode with the storyline being like, this is going to be about Maggie and her father. And somehow this curio mystery, this curio shop just like took over the storyline. And I think that's very important. The next scene with her is like later that night, she rolls up on the curio shop. And this scene is like completely, um, it's got the the background. The music is this song, Mo Onions by Booker T and the MGs. Uh, really co- kind of like grooving bluesy song that I think she's like, well, I was going to say, I think she was like listening to it on the radio, but she does get out of her car. And obviously the, the song continues. She's like walking around at night with a flashlight approaching this shop, maybe to like sneak in and find some clues. I love the, um, like the wind in this scene. It's like blowing the leaves and blowing in Maggie's face. And uh, uh, unfortunately, it's, the scene is cut short because a branch just like slams into her eye. She's like, ow, that hurts. And she like retreats, goes back to her car. Yeah, very anticlimactic there. <laughs> yeah, that brings us to Joel's second late night visit. Mm, um, yeah. He's got to treat Maggie <laughs> right here. Of course, it is symbolic because Maggie has now scratched her left eye and she has to wear this eye patch that Joel kind of puts on to her. So it limits her view literally, mm. just like her view is being limited metaphorically throughout this episode as she is only focusing on this mystery instead of her father's marriage. This is uh, probably the most pivotal scene in the entire episode. Mm-hmm. I will give props to it. I think there's some very strong writing that's going on in here. Uh, this is where Joel is dissecting down Maggie's issues. So Maggie's saying, like, don't you think it's weird that they're doing all these things? And then for each of the things that she's laying out, Joel is able to parlay back and be like, it's not that unusual. Look, I got an aunt that collects watches and she usually has like special reserve orders and they usually like reserve it just for her. It's probably what's happening with this Anubis statue. Also, don't take it from me, but like, I don't think they're living like an idyllic nuclear uh, family household. There's things going on below. I can't spill more than that. HIPAA <laughs> policies, yada, yada. And he's being really reliable for Maggie and for the townsfolk right there. Yeah, I like that, Joel. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he's definitely helping out a lot, but he's like solving this mystery. But I, I like that Joel kind of is just like, look, it's not a mystery. Like he probably should have told us, like I could have told you all along that, you know, patient confidentiality, I can't say too much, but obviously like this isn't like a happy household. Of course they're fighting. Like, you know, I think she, he says something like they have a teenage son. He's about driving age. They don't get along. That explains like someone driving off in the car and he goes on like this long um, speech about just mysteries and the real world and how, you know, we love mystery and fiction, but when it comes in our life, it's, it's usually not exciting, but just kind of, um, kind of annoying, you know, kind of like he says intractable, which I thought is a great word. It means hard to control, uh, depressing, innervating, <laughs> which is, you know, innervating, causing you to feel drained of energy. Like you just... It it's, it's sucks to have a mystery in real life. He, he says, like, uh, 
the mysteries in real life are are more like sad. It's like, what? Why do we always hurt the ones we love? Uh, I'll just play the soundbite. It's a really, it's kind of a long soundbite, but this whole scene is, as you said, pretty, pretty astounding writing. Look, I can't breach patient confidentiality, okay? But take my word for it. We're dealing with a very unhappy, dysfunctional family, and that is all there is to it. But there is no mystery. At least not the kind you want, all right? In real life, there are no fog-bound moors. There are no clues on matchbooks or, or fifth columnists waiting to be unmasked. It'd be nice if there were because there'd be solutions to things in life, but it, it doesn't work that way. So you thought about this too, huh? I mean, everyone likes a good detective story. I went through my Hammett phase in college. I think the attraction is, in life, our mysteries aren't exciting, you know? They're just intractable and depressing and enervating. Like, why do we always hurt the ones we love? Where does the money go? Why can't the Russians find a way to govern themselves and let the rest of us off of this perpetual gnawing anxiety? Yeah. See, in, in a detective story, at least the universe makes sense. You know, it was him. He did it. The natural order is disturbed, but the beauty of it is, is that it's restored again. Yeah. You know, I've wanted to brain my father all week. That wedding thing, you know? Oh. Yeah. You look tired. Why don't you uh, go home and get some rest for that eye? I think that's really great writing and, and really great performance from Maggie and Joel. Like, you know, Rob Morrow, Joel, he's got a lot to chew on in this scene, a lot of words to really have fun. It's, uh, it's a very, like, uh, you know, there's a lot of rhythmic and poetic language in there. And... Maggie, Janine Turner, you know, she doesn't she only has like a few lines, but she's like, she's really given it. Like she's I, just even that last, it's kind of doesn't translate as well in an audio form, but just the way she says, yeah, you know, to herself and to Joel, uh, really, really um, hits that idea that we're talking about is like, this whole thing is a distraction of what's really going on inside Maggie and her feelings about her dad without having to say like, you know what, really this whole time I was just jealous that my dad is taken away from me, you know, like that, you know, he's got his whole own life now that I'm not a part of. It's a lot better than just hearing that in, in this, in this scene, we get a few words that say, they say as much as that, or maybe even more, you know, it's whatever we want to ascribe to it. Right. Yeah. I think that's a really elegant way that you described it right there. I think that, uh, there, there is always, there always comes a times where you can execute an idea that's going to be more important than the originality or the depths of the original material in which you're doing, and I think that they're implementing it very well. What I mean by this is that they're taking the idea of something that's very black and white. So a mystery novel has one culprit, and once you solve it, you solve it, and that's it. It goes from zero to a hundred very quickly. <laughs> Uh, in real life, oftentimes there's gradients, shades of color in between 0 and 100. So that's essentially what Joel is trying to say right here right. and saying that like you're trying to run away to a very simple solution, uh, a world in which it's binary and real life doesn't work that way. It didn't have to use mystery novels. Uh, I would argue that most media that we consume – kind of has a similar uh, approach in things because that's it's simpler to write that way. It's easier for us to digest. Yeah. Uh, so the use of mystery novels is actually kind of novel because they're implementing it 
in all of the other plot lines that Maggie is in, and then finally tying it here. I think that it does a really great job. I think that Joel has a fantastic monologue right here. I think that in an older Northern Exposure episode, like OG seasons one through four (laughs) and a half, they might have done it differently. Like, I can't help but shake the feeling that they would have approached this in a different manner. The execution would have been different, but the idea would have been about the same, using a mystery novel to convey uh, the complexities of situations in life. How how do you think it would have been a little different? I actually really like the conclusion of this, but what do you think would have changed? I did too. I... I, I I am a simple individual. If I can grasp like the metaphor, I'm like, all right, let's go, man. Like <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah. But I feel like in seasons one through four and a half, it left the audience to interpret a little bit more. Um, it was mm. more subtle. Yeah. It was uh it it just well, wasn't as I on the it, nose. I think it yeah, I think I sh- I see what you're saying. Like sometimes and a storyline will end without an ending. Like this is kind of an ending and it's very subdued. It's very understated because exactly what I said, like Maggie doesn't explain like, you know, I felt this betrayal that my dad got remarried or, you know, like when a, when, um, when like a father, when his daughter gets married, you know, he feels like there's that whole thing where they walk, they walk the bride out. It's like giving away your daughter. We're in a way like Maggie is in this unique position where, this doesn't happen to a lot of people, but her parent is getting married, remarried. That never really happens to a child, but she's got to deal with maybe a similar, like giving away her dad to someone else. But she, you know, none of this is spoken at all. So it is very understated, but I think I agree with what you're saying. Like some older episodes of Northern Exposure don't even have like an ending. Like if you look back at it and think about it, it does feel complete, but it doesn't have like a sound conclusion it leaves a lot open for you to think about right they are leaving it subtle in the way that maggie only says like two or three lines addressing her relationship with her father at the end and she's saying like you know they don't outright say it she didn't you know have the thesis statement right there and be like (laughs) joe you are entirely correct i have been (laughs) avoiding my issues and using the mystery as a coping mechanism in order to avoid talking about my father (laughs) Like, they don't say that like that blatantly, but they still bring it up in the first place. And I can't, I, I think it's really well done. I just don't know if they would have done that in the original season. But again, like I say, uh, execution matters a lot more than originality. I always give points more toward uh, the execution. So I think of the idea that they're trying to communicate is this... Um, is a, a, a universal theme, then I think maybe you need to approach it in this manner, which is why I do like this episode. I think this is the strongest plot point. I think that Joel and Maggie are doing a fantastic job carrying the scene. I mean, so far I really enjoy it. It's just that maybe I'm a little bit soured on Maurice's side that diminishes this episode for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're definitely kind of, we're, we're trying to, uh, I think we're definitely putting like a, a, a magnifying glass on this season now because we know about the history and like David Chase jumping on and Brandon Falsey leaving. So we're trying to find like what the differences are because there will be and there are differences. But uh, yeah, overall, I think this is uh, at least Maggie's plotline. 
really solid uh, conclusion here. I really like this plot line. Yeah, so uh, Joel mentioned that he had like a little Hammett phase, and I, I didn't actually know who that author was, but it turns out that it is Dashiell Hammett, who is an American author of hard-boiled detective novels. He wrote The Maltese Falcon, Red Harvest, and The Thin Man, and the screenplay for Watch and Orion. All of these are critically acclaimed novels. He is like pretty much described as like the father of modern-day mysteries right there. But what's more interesting than his novels is his personal life Hmm. because he was the president of the Civil Rights Congress, which was a civil rights organization that litigated cases of uh, racial injustice and disenfranchised individuals. And it had a good run for 10 years from like 1946 to 1956. But the House Committee on Un-American Activities, HUAC, (laughs) outed them as communist and shut them down. Uh, Arguably, they were communist. Uh, I'm not denying that. I'm like, if you look through like the archives, I'm not saying whether that's bad or good. I'm just saying like, uh, Huac wanted to shut them down. They obviously did their job properly. So the way they did it was that the Civil Rights Congress has a bail fund, and they bailed out 11 men that were being tried for overthrowing the government. When their appeals became exhausted and they had no other options left. Four of the 11 ran away rather than serve their sentence. And Hammett was dragged to the Supreme Court to testify on who the list of contributors to the bail fund were because those might be people who might be sympathetic enough to harbor the fugitives. (laughs) Hammett refused. I don't blame him. (laughs) He did what he believed was good. And he actually got sentenced to prison because of that. That actually severely hurt his image and his novels – uh, sold much less after that. Um, it was a very unfortunate event. This happened to numerous artists uh, in Hollywood during this time, and it just happened to occur to Mr. Hammett right here. Yeah, definitely a dark spot on our nation's history. Lots of lots of art and artists. You know, I, I feel like if things were a different way, maybe we'd we'd have a lot more um, just amazing works. You know. In, in our nation's history. Okay, Charles, now is the part in our podcast where we like to invite on a guest to tell us their opinion of the episode. Uh, typically, it's someone who has never seen an episode of Northern Exposure before, but today we're very, very fortunate to have Anne Gordon on the podcast. She was the animal trainer, coordinator, handler for Northern Exposure, very many episodes. And some of her credits, Listed are Harry and the Hendersons from 1987, uh, Gus Van Sant's My Own Private Idaho, Robert Redford's A River Runs Through It, uh, Home for the Holidays in 95, Practical Magic, lots of, you know, she's worked on lots of uh, motion pictures, but also apparently lots of TV. Anne, are you there right now? Hello? I am here. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for talking to us and, re- and you know, responding when we reached out. We're very excited. Uh, just just for the listeners to kind of get a picture in their head. If I'm not mistaken, Anne, I think you are featured in the first episode of Northern Exposure as, I think it says patient number two, but it's the lady who has the beaver. In that <laughs> Correct. In, in the Correct. <laughs> I'll never live that down. Yeah. Yes. That, that was me. And the, the story behind that is that when I read the script, it called for, and it, again, it's the pilot episode, so everything's new. You don't know all the 
the producers, directors, and the actors very well yet. And it calls for a teenage girl to walk into the doctor's <laughs> office holding an adult beaver and sticking her hand in uh. its mouth to show the teeth. And I'm like, I said to the producer, I said, I'm sorry, but you know, that's going to have to be my hand, yeah. an insert on my hand. I'm not having a teenage actor put their hand in a beaver's mouth. Yeah. And the, the producer said to me, well, why don't you just do the whole thing? Yeah. And I was like, and as an, usually the crew, we don't want to be on camera. Right. <laughs> so when they asked me, I was, I hesitantly said yes. <laughs> and I, I'll, I'll be totally honest. I was much more nervous to say my four lines yeah. than I was yeah. to handle the beaver because I'm used to handling animals of all types. Yeah. And and then, of course, sticking my hands in the mouth, to me, it was no big deal. It was a very friendly beaver and it was, <laughs> it was fine. But saying those four lines and then the, doing the close-up, that was terrifying for me. <laughs> are beavers naturally uh, like very easy animals to handle? Like, are they skittish on camera or are they, you know, they're fine being held by a human? Well, any wild animal is not naturally used to being held and manipulated by people. However, this one had been hand raised by people, had lives with people, was part of an educational outreach program. So it was very comfortable and very calm and, and docile. That's good. Oh, wow. <laughs> and by the way, you did a terrific job as an actress in that episode. I know it was just four <laughs> lines, but very natural. And I think perfect, like the perfect uh, look for that and, you know, character for that part. <laughs> well, the funny part is, as I was trying to, when I first said my lines, I was trying to like emote and put in emotion. And the director's like, no, 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 which was Josh Brand who created it. Oh, wow. He says, no, 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 just play it flat. Like, <laughs> yeah, just okay. <laughs> don't add anything. It was great. Um, well, right before we started recording, we talked a little bit because I was actually curious about the distinctions between the roles of animal trainer, animal coordinator, animal handler. Is there a difference to you? What are the what are the distinctions there? Yeah, there are differences and and people that are not in the in the film business get them mixed up all the time. And, <laughs> and that's fine. It's not a big deal. I don't take offense to it. But an animal trainer is the person who actually handles the set, train the animal on set, trains it to behave the way the script calls for, and then and works it on the set. The animal coordinator is someone who is usually an animal trainer, but who is in charge of handling and arranging all of the animals for a specific show. So on Northern Exposure, I was a trainer a lot of the times, but I also was the coordinator. So for example, when we needed Jesse the bear, <laughs> I don't own a bear. Or when we needed Mort the moose, I don't own a moose. So, but I found them and I worked with their handlers, their trainers, to bring them and get them up to speed on what the animal needed to do. So they kind of, I was like subcontracting the trainers. Right. And then there's another term you see a lot, which is animal wrangler, mm -hmm. which is more about when you're wrangling an animal that really doesn't, like you're a herd of horses or okay. a, a flock of sheep kind of thing. Then you're kind of wrangling them into position as opposed <laughs> to trained them to come to a mark and speak on cue and, you know, do right. all the tricks. Yeah. You've got, you've, you're more just like kind of pushing them in a direction. It's less, Correct. Uh, it's less yes. finessed maybe, but, um, uh, 
Speaking of Mort the Moose, uh, I've you know there's a lot of stuff, interviews and uh, or articles published online about this moose is such an iconic part of you know it's the opening titles of right. Northern Exposure. But what was it like? Um, well, I guess you said you brought you found this moose, brought it in. Were you there mm-hmm. when they were shooting this? Like, to give us your perspective yes. of of this whole of the moose. Sure. Well, the fun part was when I. When I read the script and they asked about, okay, we need a moose for the opening credits. And I'm like, okay, fine. So I get on the phone and I'm calling all of my animal film animal trainer colleagues and like, hey, I need a moose. I get a moose. Everybody across the board was like, nope, can't be done. We get this call once in a while. Can't be done. Nobody's got one. You can't do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm the kind of person that's like, okay, where else do I call? Right. And so I started searching and searching. And I found out that Washington State University in Eastern Washington had a nutritional research program, and they happened to have a yearling moose Mm. that was an orphan out of the wild. Wow. And moose in captivity do not, at that time, did not survive well and always had nutritional problems. Mm -hmm. And so this program was to try and figure out what what we were missing in their diet. And so Mort, his real name (laughs) was this orphan found in Alaska that was sent to the university. And so I contacted the professor who was in charge of the moose, the biologist, and he was totally fine with it and brought him over in a trailer. And we literally fenced off the entire town of Roslyn (laughs) because we didn't want to lose him. Right. (laughs) And, but as you can see, he's quite calm and relaxed and we literally led him and yes, I was there and we led him around town with bananas, which he loves, (laughs) not a natural (laughs) moose diet, but he loves them and willow branches. And so when you see him turning his head, looking around the town, it's just me on one side with some willow branches and his, his handler on the other side with willow branches, shaking them to get him to look. And then he, and you also notice he's chewing the whole time because yes, he took a bite <laughs> and they edited out the part where he actually had the leaves in his mouth. <laughs> yeah. So there you is, must, a, oh, go ahead, Charles. Oh, I was just going to say, you must've got so much respect in your, uh, <laughs> in your line of business for being able to secure that moose. And everyone's telling me like, I can't be done. It can't be done. <laughs> and you've proven them wrong. I can't believe you actually tracked down like a university that happened to have a biologist studying this e- extremely niche right. area <laughs> that had, a, that is extremely impressive. And, and uh, like, it, it's more impressive more so in the fact that like this uh, opening credits is incredibly iconic to the mm-hmm. fandom. So that is very, very impressive that you manage to spiral something into like something that retains in people's memories like 30 years right. from now. Yeah. Right. Everybody remembers the moose for sure. That shot. And and you're right. All in fact, all the other animal trainers in the film business, if they got a moose call, they would then call me. That okay. was their first call. <laughs> yeah. It's like who did Nor- who did Northern Exposure? Get her on right. the line. Um, yeah. So you were talking about leading the animal around with uh, food and treats. That's I guess some of the like movie magic and uh, yes. maybe some of the handling and training. We talked a little bit, and you were telling me about you specifically trained the dog in uh, the episode was Animals R Us, season three, episode four. It was uh, when Maggie, she finds this lost dog and she slowly starts to realize that 
this dog might be her dead boyfriend, Rick, reincarnated. <laughs> right. And I was scrubbing through that episode this morning. The dog does a lot of, you know, commands and just a lot of emotions that seem more human. And I guess some of that's like the editing and the sound effects they add in. But maybe talk a little bit about uh, about that episode working with that dog. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And I did train that dog. He wasn't my own. He was a dog, uh, a private pet from a woman I knew and that I had used on a number of commercials and other photo shoots before. So I knew the dog pretty well. And he looked the part and he, he did have, you know, a lot of emotions in his face. You could read him pretty well. <laughs> he was, he was a fun dog. And, but the producer was concerned that I would use only one dog because he was a mixed breed, mm -hmm. kind of a Husky shepherd and who knows what else cross that, we couldn't really double him, which is what we normally do when an animal is, has a major part like that. Mm -hmm. Is that because, um, because like, you know, you can't work a dog like 12 hours. You have to like tra tra trade them out, I guess. Part of it is, is to, so they're not too tired. Mm -hmm. And the other part is that like when I did some of the air buddy movies we had and what I, and Homeward Bound on those movies, we <laughs> had like eight cats playing the part of sassy and four <laughs> wow. buddies. And because each individual animal has their specialties in mm. what they do. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So like one is a more active dog. Another is a more, more, you use one for the face shots. One is more precision and better at certain tricks. Mm -hmm. So on film, it makes this really well-rounded character. Yeah. But the behaviors, I felt pretty comfortable that we could do it with one dog and we were, able to and he was a great dog he was really fun to work with and we did add a few more behaviors for that episode and it worked out quite well it was really fun yeah that's impressive to know that it you know if you're like you're like we're describing if you're watching an animal on screen it's most likely it could be uh, an amalgamation of a number of different Correct. animals creatures but this is one singular like this is the character it is do you remember the dog's name uh in real life or yeah his name was wolf Wolf. <laughs> wolf. Wolf or Wolfie. Wolfie. Nice. So in the notes for that episode, they were specifically asking for like a dog that embodied Rick's uh, Rick's values? No, it was more about, they had a brief description of him, kind of a husky type, an Alaskan oh. type dog. Oh, and then they list, okay. they list the behaviors that mm. in the, he's supposed to do. So I read a script obviously very differently than someone else would read it. And so I'm looking for the behaviors. I'm looking for how, and I'm thinking how I would pull that off. And okay. is this going to be hard? Is this going to be easy? How much time do I need to train this? Et cetera, et cetera. Okay, got it. Uh, speaking on dogs, uh, I'm sure this is not uh, a surprise to listeners of the podcast, but I am fascinated by all of the dogs that are wandering around in the streets <laughs> in like almost every single episode. I don't think right. there's like a single episode in which there isn't a dog roaming the streets of yep. Sicily, Alaska. And I have yep. to ask, uh, how is that done? Like, are you selecting random, like just well-trained dogs um, to just send off? Um, how are you sending them off at certain times? Like, like, cause they always run across the street in like perfect moments. Um, <laughs> how, yeah. how is this all done? Please explain the, uh, the magic behind the curtains. Yeah, absolutely. Most of those background town dogs, as they were called, were my own dogs. <laughs> um, just because it was just easy to just because because they're background dogs, there's nothing scripted for them. 
which means they have to be pretty well-rounded on their behaviors to just whatever the director or assistant director's whim of, hey, let's have a dog do this, right? Mm -hmm. And like there was one that one director that always wanted some dogs to run up and jump on Dr. Fleischman. And that (laughs) happens in several episodes. And (laughs) right. So um, I had dogs that were trained to go jump on people, you know, as as pet dogs, we train them not to do that. But in film, we (laughs) often train them to do things you don't want them to do as a pet. But you're right, Charles, in that we very carefully timed everything so that it would flow with the angle. If the angle is a wide angle and then zooms in on the characters, the actors speaking, we obviously have the dog cross in the beginning, or if it widens out, we cross later. And then the reason you want a trained dog and not to rely on a dog that happened to be in town that happened to run across the shot is that you cover the scene from different angles and the dog could be seen in several of those angles. So you want it repeatable so that it matches every version that, so the editor can put it all together and just make it. And then to the viewer, it just looks like a dog wandering across town. Yeah. It's doing that same, that same walk in every setup that you shoot in that, in that scene. And at the same speed. Mm, uh, And sometimes they're walking with somebody and we train a behavior called go with, which means I can send the dog to walk with whoever I tell him to walk. Oh, wow. With. Mm-hmm. I didn't right? think about and that. It's, yeah. And it's not on leash. It's an off leash and it's not a heel where it's not a rigid stay exactly this distance from the person. Right. Mm-hmm. It's and, and sit every time he pauses. No, it's just a real, like you see a boy and a dog walking down a country road. The dog wanders in and wanders out and just kind of hangs out with him. Nice. That is fascinating right there. So, uh, yeah, there's so many, uh, uh, just scrubbing through episodes this morning, like looking for animals featured in Northern Exposure. There's a lot more than you might remember, but some of Mm -hmm. the more iconic moments too, uh, I have to also think about Princess the Crane. Let me see what episode that was in. Oh gosh, yeah. uh, Season four, episode seven, The Bad Seed. Do you remember this? Were you part of? Um, I was. Yeah. So there's like the iconic scene at the end where they're dancing with the band in. I read online that there's, you know, maybe some strings involved to try to get the crane to move. No, no, no strings because that could have been really dangerous. I was worried Mm -hmm. about that. But yeah, 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 maybe tell us how does that work? Yeah, that actually was a, a crane that was, you know, a captive raised animal. And we brought in the guy that the bird knew really well and the, the bird, and he had this game that he played with the, with the crane. And so like he would move around and move his arms, like kind of similar to the way the bird moves. And so the bird would kind of mimic him and play around with that. So (laughs) yeah, that worked out really, really well, but it was, it was hard to find somebody with cranes. I mean, there, there are people with deer and with bears that that are made for, Mm. for, that are trained for film, but not so many cranes. Yeah. That is a, I didn't think about that. It's a very specific yes. element to the story, I guess. Crane. Right. Well, speaking of large bipedal birds, uh, there is an episode by the name of Animals Are Us mm-hmm. where ostriches oh, yeah. are featured Gosh. heavily in that episode. <laughs> is that also the a similar story in which like there just is an abundance of ostriches to get? Um, actually, that was a little easier to find. 
However, uh, uh, this is going to go really behind the scenes. You're going to love this. <laughs> okay. Two, what, well, first, we found that at that time, there were a number of people that had ostrich farms. Mm -hmm. okay. And so I found some people and ostriches are not so easy to move around. So I said to the producers, why don't we just go to the ostrich farm instead of trying mm -hmm. to create? And yeah. so we did. That, that worked sense. out well. So we <laughs> went to their place. So two things that you may not know, but in the script, Maurice, that was all his connection. And he was all excited about this ostrich farm thing. And but Barry Corbin is terrified of birds. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. I love Barry. Barry is one of my favorite people that on that show. And yeah. I, he and I both had horses and we hung out together a right. lot. Okay. A beautiful man, really a great person. However, he had had a really bad incident as a child and mm. was father to grandfather's ranch where a rooster attacked him. Mm. Oh, his worst nightmare was to do a scene with ostriches. Yeah. <laughs> but fortunately, they were always on the outside of the pen. So he, you know, he acted the part well, coming yeah. across confident and typical Maurice, despite the fact that Barry the man was not comfortable in that situation. That's great. You know, they they could have actually written that into that episode. Because that seems, as odd as that sounds, that sounds very much like the character of Maurice. To have, like, a very specific uh, <laughs> yeah. fear of oh, something yeah. very common. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. like, oh, man, that is... <laughs> I would never in a million years have guessed that, though. Right. I would surprise me. Because, you know, he... He's out riding his horses all the time and doing tough cowboy stuff. But, <laughs> right. Know, kind of, no. yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I had read that he, you know, obviously he loves horses and there's many episodes in Northern Exposure. I can think of like, uh, uh, what's the, what the three amigos where they're like going to bury right. their old friend and yep. Sicily, which was like the wild yes. west. Um, yep. So lots of horses going on yes. there. And that's really cool to know that you I, I'm assuming you've probably gone horseback riding with Barry Corbin. You seem like I have, good yeah, friends. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and Janine had horses as oh, well for right. a while that's there, right. and she had her horse at the same barn I did, and I got her into that barn, and we used to ride together as well. That's awesome. That's really cool to hear that you know the cast also had like a strong connection to mm -hmm. you know when animals are brought in. So we've talked. To, we've been talking about a lot of different animals. What do you have any memories of? particularly hard to find animals maybe that we haven't touched on or maybe are difficult. Like what was, what was maybe the most difficult challenges you faced as um, animal coordinator or trainer on Northern Exposure? Well, it's probably not what you're going to think, but it's as any animal trainer in the film industry will tell you that it's usually not the animals that are the problem mm. <laughs> to work with because we, if we're good at our job, it's not going to be hard mm -hmm. and we're going to do our homework. We're going to do our prep work. It's it's, we're going to show up prepared and the animal, but a lot of times the director changes their mind at the last minute, right. <laughs> even though you've trained and prepped on film sometimes for months for a certain behavior. And then they're like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this instead. And the animal isn't trained for that. Right. They're not robots. Right. <laughs> and so sometimes that can be a real challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and then 
you know, the actors on Northern Exposure were quite good, but sometimes on, on other films I've had where the actor will have nothing to do with you. Yeah. But if the animal has to work with them, yeah, it really helps if you can at least talk to them. <laughs> and, you know, you don't have to give them a treat, but it does help if they like the animal and it will interact with them. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's another performer. They need to treat it, it like is. another performer and try to engage with yeah. it and actually, because, you know, it's... It's got to be like real. It's got to be like real life. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing is they don't, in most films, and I'm not soloing out Northern Exposure here, they were generally pretty good because I worked with them for so long. But there's times when a director doesn't understand that just like the actors, the animals need to rehearse the scene at least once hmm. so they understand exactly what they're doing in that specific environment. But they'll give the camera crew time to set up and the lighting crew time to light and, you know, hair and makeup time to prepare the anim- the actors and then the actors time to rehearse. And then they're like, hurry up, let's go. We need the animal now. Yeah. Like, give me two minutes and then it will save you a ton of time. No, no, no. We got to go now. So that was a little frustrating at times. That is so interesting to hear that the most difficult part would be the bureaucracy of <laughs> the, the human peoples. aspect. Yeah. Right. Because, uh, I mean, I, I'm sure you know this as well since you're very well um, into the industry itself, but every single role has a purpose that are just as important as the mm-hmm. actor or the director, like the ones that people would ordinarily associate with films. So like right. uh, like the costume designer, the armor, the animal handlers, all of those play like an important mm-hmm. role. And yeah. they're not realizing that like they have an equal part to it. Yes, so absolutely. Like, I think that's actually really interesting to hear that your most difficult uh, aspect of working in film wasn't the animal. Like it's not the murderous bear that could <laughs> easily turn on you, whichever animal. It's, nope. it's the incompetence of the people that are that are there. And I think it's very funny that you said that. Like you got to give like the animal a treat because it almost sounds like you need to give the actors like a treat to like calm them down if they don't like the animals. <laughs> well, you know, I learned early on in my film career, and I wouldn't use the word manipulation, but it's kind of like that. The way of speaking to directors and producers and actors to never actually use the word no, even if, you know, they're asking me to, to, can the dog jump off this, you know, 500 foot cliff? I would say, well, how about this instead? (laughs) Or understanding what the feeling they want from the animal Mm-hmm. and understanding why they want the behavior and then offering another behavior that will give the same feel. Yeah. It's like, this but, is how we and, but, do and it. doing it in a way where the director kind of thinks it's his idea. And yeah. I was like, what a good <laughs> idea. Yes. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. Some mind games. That's really good. Uh, but yeah, so we actually didn't talk about this up front, but um Talking about, you know, from the beginning of your career, I guess you, you've you worked before Northern Exposure, obviously. What was it like? Like, how did you get into this field? And then how did you find Northern Exposure? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I studied biology and animal behavior in university. Hmm. I then graduated and started working at the Seattle's Woodland Park Zoo. And I worked there for three years and I loved it. And I like more interaction with the animals. And in a zoo, there's not a lot of interaction. So I left the zoo and I worked for a training company in California that taught people how to train wild animals. 
Um, and I was there for about a year. And then I came back to the Northwest and I started my own company to train animals to go out and do educational outreach programs. Mm. Like I would take a tiger out to do a school assembly to teach them to appreciate endangered species. And as I realized, as I was doing that, I realized there was nobody in the Pacific Northwest, Oregon or Washington, that was providing animals for the film industry. Mm-hmm. So I started networking and going to local Seattle film crew. I would go to their meetings and I was a speaker at one of their meetings. And so I started networking. Nice. And in film, they use a lot more dogs and cats than they use Bengal tigers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I then started expanding into dogs and cats or whatever they would call call me for. So I became kind of a big fish in a small pond. And I was literally the only animal trainer in the Pacific Northwest for many, many years. And so when any film crew at all needed an animal, they would just call me. <laughs> and especially like, you know, shows that would come to Seattle or, you know, internet and national commercials, like would come up and they need a dog or whatever they needed. Uh, everybody in the Seattle crew had ended up being a, you know, a fairly small group and we all knew mm-hmm. each other yeah. and show up and work together a lot. And so the production manager of Northern Exposure called me and said, Hey, we'd like to talk to you. you Want to come in for a meeting? And I got the job. Very nice. What, what was your opinion of the show when you started? I guess the first episode you worked on, you're an actress in it. And as it, <laughs> as you kept working, like what, what was it like throughout, throughout the series, I guess? Well, when you work in the film industry, especially in, in a small area like that, you know, the film, Seattle film is still not known for its film, <laughs> you know, right? all, you know, this plethora of films being shot there. And so not like Vancouver or something like that, mm-hmm. where there's a ton. Okay. So you really didn't have the ability to be picky right. and, or even <laughs> have, you could have an opinion about the show one way or the other, but it didn't matter. You took the job because you, you know, wanted to get paid. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, but the scripts were kind of fun, but you can never quite a hundred percent tell from a script how it's going to turn out. And you didn't know the actors at the point. And I do remember going to, we had a party the very first, before we even started. Okay. Wow. To, you know, kind of get to know, welcome everybody. And Rob and, you know, some of the actors were there and I didn't recognize any of them at the time. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, he's the star. Okay, fine, whatever. But it was, the crew was, it's one of those shows where the crew really became a family. Mm. And especially we did it for so long for six seasons. I mean, when we first did the first, first season, it was eight episodes. It was a summer replacement series. Mm-hmm. None of us ever thought it would ever go anywhere. Yeah, you know, It was just a fun job. And then it did so well and people loved it. And it, it as they edited it and the music and the writing was so clever. Yeah. And the actors did a brilliant job that it became the amazing hit. Sorry, I think cut off, but it became the amazing hit was what I heard. I think that. Yes, correct. Um, yes. I'll, I'll hop in. Uh, so is it really true? I've read online that. They, they, and I've read in, I think, the Northern Exposure book, some, some articles about it. Uh, after the show started gaining popularity, there would be crowds of people, whenever, the, whenever you would shoot in Rosalind, be crowds of people coming to set. Was that 
ever like a problem? Was that all the time? Was there like a peak time or do you, do you remember? I do remember. It was more in the summertime. Okay. Yeah. You know, Rosslyn in the winter is not such a fun place. It's cold and wet and snowy and yeah, it's, it's not kind of tourist area. Um, but in the summer, oh my gosh, it was like, you know, like swimming through thick mud to get through wow. the crowds of people. And it was a, you know, it wasn't so bad to do my work, but it was just like, you know, trying to get them out of the shot and trying to, you know, mm-hmm. stay quiet and, you know, all of that stuff. And no, you can't talk to the dog. He's right. got to work and, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. It was a little crazy, but, you know, that just is part of being on a successful show. And so you kind of have to, it's, it goes with the territory and you kind of have to look at it like this is a compliment to yeah. our okay. work that these people are here. Yeah, that's a great perspective too. You know, <laughs> I know some uh, movie stars maybe are more standoffish to fans, but it's true. Like they're there because they love it so much right. that they have to travel to see it. I guess. Well, you know, and and I get the excitement of of <laughs> wanting to go and see it and be there. And I mean, I've worked with enough actors over the years that some of them are really method actors, and they really need to stay in character, and they mm-hmm. don't need they can't be distracted. Yeah by all of that craziness and others are like, they can go in and out of their character, like, you know, instantly. And it's not a big deal. (laughs) And they're happy to go out and sign autographs or take pictures or do whatever. It's just a personality thing. It's not, it's not, you know, good or bad, but it's just how they work. Right. Cool. I'm trying to see if I have any other notes. Is there anything you'd like to speak about um, that we maybe haven't talked about yet? Just trying to think. There was so, uh, you know, we had a lot of fun yeah, please. on the yeah. show. Mm-hmm. Um, the cr- Like I said, the crew was great. The actors were fun. Cynthia and I became really good friends. We used to go skiing together and wow. hang out <laughs> together a lot. Um, it was funny. Rob was great. I'll, I'll tell you a funny Rob story. Sorry, Rob. Um, but <laughs> I don't know if he listens to the podcast. <laughs> I, I don't know either, yeah. but you know, he and I, we've seen each other after the show and it's all good. And, and, but Rob is in person, he's very similar. And he has said this, he recently made a Facebook post about this, hmm. about how he, his personality and his background is very similar to Dr. Fleischman. Not quite so anal, but um, <laughs> but he is, you know, New York, Jewish descent, you know, big city guy. So he, Rob and I really never became good friends because we're just, I'm very typical Pacific Northwest kind of person, mm-hmm. laid back country, nature, give me, <laughs> you know, not big city at all. And so we actually never really had a lot to talk about because we just looked at the world differently. And it doesn't mean we didn't like each other because that wasn't the case. We did and respected each other and worked together just fine. Never had a problem. But I had one dog that Rob just loved. <laughs> and it was a little border collie, black and white, named Magpie mm. that you'll see in some of the later episodes and uh, probably seasons th- three and on up. Okay. But uh, she she and Rob just had this connection. And anytime I had Magpie on set, Rob would just, you know, roll on the ground with her and roll and play and <laughs> spend time with Magpie. And, and that was, that was really fun. But, you know, Magpie and Rob had a better connection than Rob and I did, but it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> That's great to hear. Uh, Charles himself has himself a, a border collie. Oh, nice. <laughs> that you, yeah. 
It's, he may uh, sometimes hear in the background of the podcast if I can't edit it out, but <laughs> yeah, he <laughs> he makes a lot of noise right there. I wanted to go outside. Right. Uh, uh, shoot, there was one more thing that I wanted to ask, and it just slipped my mind. Oh, sorry. Um, I probably three. No, 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 no. It's totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, well, like, Rob Murrow is photographed with, uh, with dogs in his promotion art, right? For Northern Exposure? Oh, let me see. Yeah, there were I'm a few that we, he is. Yeah, yeah, there are a few that we did together. And I remember one for some magazine shoot we did with Janine with one of my dogs. And yeah, I mean, he was a great sport. He, he was good with dogs. He was, he was <laughs> not a problem. But he's just not the kind of guy that he and I would go hang out together on the weekends because we just didn't have that much in common. Other yeah. than my dog. <laughs> <laughs> Other than, than Magpie. Uh, yep. That's great. Yeah. And you've, you said this already that the crew was sort of like a tight knit family. I, I just imagine mm-hmm. working on the show maybe was something qu- sort of like summer camp. You go away to yep. a kind of remote area. Everyone, like from what I've read too, it seems like a lot of the producer types maybe were back in LA and the crew themselves are sort of cut loose. They think it's kind of the wild west. They can do whatever they want because the producers are back in LA. And so a lot of times from what it sounds like, you know, actors and crew might just like blurt out an idea or just, you know, it seems very um, collaborative or at least felt like everyone was working a lot, doing their part together, you know, working together on it. Yeah, for the most part, yes. I mean, we didn't have a lot of creative (laughs) input in it. Uh, but they were, pr- for the most part, the directors that were brought in were pretty open. And of course, the the assistant directors knew us all really well. And they were like, you know, you'd say, hey, what about this? And then they could get in the ear of the director. And, and you know, Josh and John, Josh, Brandon, and John Falsey, who created and were the exec producers. Yeah, they weren't around very much mm-hmm. at all. Um, but the on-set producers, supervising producers and production manager, they were great. And yeah, there would be times when it's like, you'd read the script and go, but you knew, well, what if we did this? What do you think about mm-hmm. that? Right. And then they go, you know, yay or nay, or good idea, or, or maybe not, you know, you, a, a good team member in any department will read the script and understand the purpose of yeah. the scene. And then you would su- maybe make some suggestions that you knew you could pull off that would enhance that feeling of the scene. Mm. Do you have any like proud moments of Northern Exposure or any moments that you remember like, oh, that was like, you're very proud of your work, I guess, in that scene or? Um, well, obviously the the episode where we had, you know, Rick came back as the dog was probably yeah. the most <laughs> training intensive episode. Yeah. So that was, that was one that was really, really fun. You know, the horses in the snow where they went to bury their friend. That was a really cool mm. episode. It was, oh man, it was cold. But, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but it was a, that was a fun one. And of course, pulling off the moose that nobody thought I could pull off. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was really fun too. That's amazing. I keep thinking of one story that yeah. in my mm-hmm. mind that it, it was an interesting thing. It was later on and it was a there was an, I don't remember what episode it was, but Marilyn goes to Seattle. Yes. I could, right? mm-hmm. let me see if I can and, figure out what it's called, but, oh, go ahead. Go ahead and just tell the story. I'll look it up. So they had asked me to bring in owls for mm. that scene. 
So they brought in the owls and I thought, my first thought was, really? You want an owl to sit on a park bench next to Marilyn? <laughs> Don't you know that in many first people's beliefs that an owl portends somebody's death? Mm -hmm. And when they see an owl, it, it, they, they know. And I've actually had it happen as well. We saw two owls and I was with a friend and within a week, both of her grandmothers had passed. Wow. Hmm. So, uh, I, I, yes, yeah. I believe it. And so I said to the producers, are you sure? And they were like, no, no, it's all, we want to do it. And when we got there, it was very early in the morning in Seattle and I had the owls. We were all ready. And Elaine Miles comes out and they said, okay, we're going to bring in the owls. She's like, wait, no, we can't have <laughs> owls. Do you under, not understand what that is for my tribe? Of course, she said it in her very stoic way. Mm -hmm. And she was like, no, just very quietly. No, we can't have owls. And then the yeah, producer wow. sheepishly came over to me and said, go home. <laughs> you should cut for the day. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, okay. <laughs> I believe that episode actually ends with uh, Joel and Marilyn going the to zoo. the Seattle Zoo, right? The Seattle Zoo. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Then then they just went to the zoo. It wasn't anything that I arranged on that part. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's just get to the zoo. That was learning curve. It's episode 15 in season four. Right. Wow, yeah. very good. You are on <laughs> oh, it. <laughs> I, I looked that one up. So <laughs> I'm like, I have I'm another impressed. monitor here. Uh, I have found that, uh, I, I mean, I'm obviously a big fan of the show, but I found that after doing the podcast, I have better recall for numbers <laughs> too, not just the name of the episode. <laughs> right, right. It's kind of freaky. I think I'm nice. becoming too, nice. big of a, too big of a super fan, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> Well, Anne, thank you so much. Uh, if Yeah, I mean, if you have any thoughts or any more stories that come to mind, um, we're loving this a lot, but uh, <laughs> but also we don't want to, you know, eat up your time at the same time. But uh, Yeah, just trying to think of anything else. I did get a little nervous when I read the script about uh, where Chris builds the trebuchet and mm -hmm. was supposed to well, fling yeah. the cow. Yeah. <laughs> Starting <laughs> like, to read that. Yeah. I started to read the script. I'm like, what? There's no way we can't do that. And then I was very pleasantly relieved at the end of the episode when he decided not to fling a cow yeah. and fling the piano instead. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember watching that episode and just thinking, how is this going to work? Like for the first time watching it and just feeling like, they can't do that. Gladly. Exactly. Did, yeah. And I got to say, we were all there, even though there wasn't really any animals at the exact flinging of the piano time. I, we all showed up because yeah, I wanted to see it. We right. wanted to see it. It was amazing to actually be there to watch that piano go. And of course it wasn't really Chris that did it, you know, it was mm -hmm. the, the guys who built it, but man, that was, and, and it really did crash and, and it was frozen, just frozen ground, but it just made this huge dent. Oh, like a crater. Wow. wow. Yes. This huge den. And then we all, after they cut and we're done with the scene, we all scrambled. And I know uh, John Corbett, he was collecting like keys and pieces of the <laughs> piano as little Everyone's memorabilia. Running. running to pick it up. That's great. Well, wow. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And it's just been a pleasure. It's just been very wonderful speaking to you and kind of getting a peek behind the curtain and just knowing, I don't know, just knowing about all the animals that were involved in just, it, it seems more real now just to know about all the connections that went between 
handler, coordinator, and, and the animals and, and the crew and everything. So thanks again for coming on. But I want to say for now, um, Anne, I, I believe you have a couple podcasts of your own. If you want to plug those, uh, maybe our listeners might be interested to check it out. Who, who knows? Well, thank you. That's very sweet. Now, my podcasts have nothing to do with <laughs> film or even... <laughs> Even, you know, training animals. However, um, because I've moved on in my life, I'm no longer training animals for film, but I do run whale and dolphin wisdom retreats around the Mm -hmm. world to take people to observe, hang out, learn from, and even swim with wild dolphins and whales. Wow. So I have two podcasts and one is uh, transformational travel. So I interview guests who have had powerful, life-changing experiences traveling, whether it's around the world or a walk in the park near their home. Wow, yeah. So that's Mm. a fun one. That sounds great. And then the other one is Dolphin and Whale Tales, (laughs) T-A-L-E-S, and pun intended, of course. And that is all about what I have and what my guests have learned by spending time with dolphins and whales. Wow. Dolphins represent joy and play and bring a smile to everybody's face. And whales represent abundance, being the largest animals on earth, eating the smallest, and you never see a skinny whale. (laughs) (laughs) Why Why did you gravitate toward dolphins and whales? Well, I grew up right on the water in Olympia, Washington. My dad had a boat. I literally, literally grew up watching the orca whales my entire life. And so as I was training animals for film, I also started feeling the call to and the drive, the, the attraction of wanting to spend more time with dolphins and whales and also get into kind of the spiritual aspect of that. And so the more I learned about it, the more I, I just got immersed into it. And then I actually went... I was hired to work on a film in Panama Mm. and the film was called end of the spear. And it is a film that uh, is a true story, but not a documentary scripted film about a tribe of indigenous peoples in Ecuador that in 1956 killed five American missionaries. Mm. So we were telling that story and we hired, we shot in Panama just logistically financially made more sense Mm-hmm. And we hired a local tribe of indigenous people called the Embera tribe as our actors. Wow. So I got to hang out with them on the movie set <laughs> and was just really touched because they still live in traditional villages deep in the rainforest. Wow. And as they have for eons. And they just have this warmth and sense of family and community that I say they have the quality of life the rest of the world is searching for. Mm. So I fell in love with them as a people. And then as fate would have it, I ended up falling in love with one particular individual from the tribe and I married him. (laughs) Wow. Congrats. (laughs) Thank you. So that was back in 2004. Mm. And so I ended up moving to Panama to be with him and his family. Mm. And as I was there in this country with two oceans, 50 miles apart, I thought, okay, what species of dolphins and whales do we have? And how do I get out to see them? Yeah. And I found out that Panama is one of the only places in the world where humpback whales come from both the Northern and the Southern hemisphere to breed and give birth. Wow. And that nobody knows that. 
<laughs> yet it's super easy to find them. So I literally pioneered the whale watching industry in that country. Wow. It was not easy because <laughs> again, nobody knew we had no whales doing it. Wow. Right. And then from there doing the whale watch day tours, I wanted to, again, pardon the pun, dive deeper into <laughs> connection with the dolphins and whales and take my clients deeper as well. So that's when I started my retreats there. And now I, I, now I'm living in back in the U S in California and I go all over the world, Hawaii, the Bahamas, French wow. Polynesia, the Northwest back to Panama. I go all over on my retreats. That sounds oh, great. Wow. That sounds amazing. <laughs> well, yeah, if you're listening and you kind of want to hear more about that, um, was it whale and dolphin tales? Dolphin and whale dolphin. tales. Dolphin and whale tales. Yeah. T-A-L-E-S, like stories. And yes. then the first podcast about uh, life-changing experiences. What was the name of that? Transformational travel. Transformational travel. Yeah, if you want to hear more from Anne, if this sounds interesting, it sure sounds interesting to me, definitely check it out. Is that available to download like anywhere you get your podcast? Anywhere you get your podcast, absolutely. Love it. And once again, we're so honored to speak to you. Hopefully we can do this again sometime. And uh, yeah, it's sure. been it's been such a delight. Thank you seriously so much. Yeah, thank you for coming on. It's been my pleasure. It's always fun. It's like a blast from the past going back to all the memories from that show. <laughs> it was great fun and it was an honor to be a part of it and and a real blessing. So thank you for letting me bring those fun memories back. Okay, Charles, that does it for this week's episode. Next week, we're going to be talking about season five, Episode three, it's titled Jaws of Life. What do you think that might mean? Hmm. I don't think it has anything to do with the Steven Spielberg film. <laughs> I, you that never know. Unusual. I mean, <laughs> maybe they'll have a shark. You know, we didn't talk to Anne about any sharks on Northern Exposure, but maybe. Oh, that is true. <laughs> hmm. I, I mean, my thoughts are going to be leading me to that device that he used to get people out of the car right there. Okay. Yeah, a little mechanism. Oh. So I'm guessing maybe someone gets into a car crash. That's a very literal interpretation. But, you know, maybe it's that. Wow. Okay. Well, let's save it for next week. Uh, until then, uh, it's been great, Charles. I'll see you next week. All right. I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork, and thanks to Ann Gordon for being our guest. You can listen to our podcasts, Transformational Travel and Dolphin and Whale Tales, wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.